That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I have a question for you. Simple question. Where do you get your news? I guess there's a follow-up question. The question would be, how do you know you can trust it? But I thought about that last night as we saw CNN Sports break the news on Doc Rivers becoming the Milwaukee Bucks' next head coach. Not Adrian Wojnarowski. Not Shams. Not Chris Haynes. Wasn't ESPN Sports Center? Wasn't Scott Van Pelt? It was CNN Sports, and it was greeted with some confusion. That report, as Jamal Crawford, former Blazer, who happened to be on the set, and the crew was breaking the news on TNT, citing CNN Sports, and here came. Jamal Crawford, who said, CNN Sport? CNN? Like, he was he was legitimately, legitimately confused. And CNN's initial report on Tuesday was refuted by uh, CBS's Bill Ryder, Chris Haynes, Woj, and in fact refuted by the idea that as of Wednesday morning, CNN was the only major outlet actually saying the deal was done. Now, there are a variety of theories that are floating around about how it is that CNN broke this news and whether they can be trusted to break news on the NBA and sports in general. And one of the prevailing theories is that, that you know, sometimes news agencies will begin to write a script or begin to write a story before the news actually happens. And it was probably the worst-kept secret in the NBA that when Adrian Griffin was fired by the Milwaukee Bucks on Tuesday – that Doc Rivers was likely the next head coach. Doc had already consulted and been a mentor to Adrian Griffin. He was paid by the team to do some consulting work during the uh, in-season tournament. And so I think a lot of people logically turn to Doc Rivers, who, by the way, has success as a coach who can coach at the highest level, uh, get a team to the finish line, so to speak, He's got proof of performance. So it, it's logical that the Bucks would turn in that direction. But CNN may have jumped the gun. And I'm here to tell you that a lot of newspapers and a lot of media companies, television stations, radio stations to some extent, will do some of this preemptive work. And I can tell you that, like, for years, uh, as Bill Shonley was aging, a variety of media outlets in the Portland metropolitan area started to craft, uh, you know, obituaries for Bill Shonley. 
you know, and started to put together, you know, all of his audio cuts and a story about his life. And and this happens, I think, in a lot of newsrooms where, um, you know, there's some downtime. They'll often put a writer or a intern on the job of, hey, begin to craft the obituary for Bob Hope. Begin to craft the obituary for what fill in the blank of the aging celebrity that you will eventually need an obituary because I got news for you. This is not breaking news, but we all end up in the same place. Okay. You know, so we all end up needing an obituary uh, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. And so this happens. And so one of the prevailing theories on why CNN was the one that broke the news was that perhaps somebody at CNN was putting together a script and and knew that Doc Rivers was likely going to become the Milwaukee Bucks' next coach and wanted to have that story or that script pre-written. Somehow, though, it ended up in the hands of TNT, its sister station, and ended up on air during the you know post-game report for the Knicks and the Nets. Or and here came uh, you know Jamal Crawford going CNN, and so that's one of the theories. The other theory might just be that somebody at CNN had an in, meaning somebody knew Doc Rivers personally, knew this to be true, or somebody knew somebody at the Milwaukee Bucks who was tipping off the station. But it was awfully curious to see early this morning that the only confirmed report that Doc Rivers was going to be the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks came from CNN. And that report had a byline of CNN staff, not an individual member, Nobody out front, like, pumping their chest and thumping their chest and saying, I had it first. And I'm here to tell you, you know, you know this, we're in a world where being first, uh, you know, holds a lot of credibility and holds a lot of of impact. And I have always said, like, do I enjoy breaking news? Yes. Do I break news? Yes. Do I tell you when somebody's interviewing for a coaching job or not interviewing for a coaching job or general manager getting fired or you know what's going to happen with the Pac-12, or do do I do I enjoy being first? Of course, but I'm never going to be first at the expense of being right. And I think CNN probably this morning, as the news eventually came true, probably breathed a deep sigh of relief behind the scenes as Adrian Wojnarowski and others eventually confirmed the report. But I thought it was awfully interesting and maybe a little bit telling, sign of the times, so to speak, that you know. A Google News search for Doc Rivers at 6 a.m. this morning basically had, you know, a bunch of reports saying that the deal was not yet complete with CNN posting a story at 1243 in the morning, uh, basically saying this was a done deal. And so and I ask you, you know, where do you get your news? I, I don't really need you to call in with the answer, but I want you to think about it. Where do you get your news and how do you trust it? And I can tell you I was in Costco months and months ago, and I had one of the Costco employees who recognized me coming through the checkout line said the nicest thing to me. The guy said to me, hey, I listen to your show. And he said, I mostly tune in when there is breaking news or something big's about to happen because I trust that you're going to tell me what's true and what's not true. And I also am there to hear what you think about it. And it meant the world to me because I don't really think about this show in those terms. Like, it's hard for me sometimes to step out of my shoes behind the microphone into 
your shoes being in the audience, but I try. And I try to remember that this show is not supposed to be life or death. It's not supposed to be taxes or uh, you know, your your last will and testament, and it's not supposed to feel all that serious. It's, it's supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be so much unlike the other parts of your life that you, uh, you know, you'd flip the switch on and, and need a break from. And so I also know that you, you, you want to be able to come here and know that you can trust what you're getting. And, and, and you want to be able to go and read me at johnconzano.com and, and trust what you're getting. And I, I can tell you this, like I find out things all the time. I find out things that uh, some of them are relevant to you, some of them aren't. I find out things that I have to double and triple check. And I can tell you that one of the luxuries that I have being on this show is like yesterday alone. Yesterday alone, I talked to six different college athletic directors. One in the SEC, two in the Big Ten, two in the Pac-12, one in uh, the Mountain West Conference, and... I was picking the brains of those athletic directors, and a whole bunch of things came up. Some of them I could report. Some of them I'm just filing away. Some of them I want to double and triple check. But one of the things I can tell you, like, you know, there's a bunch of angst right now about UCLA and Chip Kelly. Is he going to the NFL? Is he going to Seattle? Is he part of a package deal? Is he going to be a, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know if he is going to the NFL or not going to the NFL, but I can tell you what's going on at UCLA because I talked to Martin Jarman, the UCLA athletic director, yesterday. And Jarman told me, Chip Kelly's out recruiting. And I said, okay, like, how do you know, you know, or what are you doing to make the players at UCLA understand that, that uh, you know, they know they're going to have a coach? And he said, it's why I went to a workout today. Like, ADs in today's world spend less and less time with athletes and more and more time with attorneys. Name, image, likeness, transfer portal, change the game for athletic directors in college. But Martin Jarman put his sneakers on yesterday. He went down to where the UCLA athletes were working out. And he let himself be seen. Why? Because he wanted UCLA football players to see, hey, the athletic director's here. That guy's got our back. We're going to have a coach. There's stability here. And I'm not going to bring you that story because, like, somebody's friend told me or a neighbor's sister's hairdresser's friend told me. I'm not doing that. I don't play that game. I know that, you know, we're in a news cycle in a news world in a media world where, you know, we had a television station in Eugene, Oregon announced to the world that there was a plane heading from Tuscaloosa to Eugene and then back again, and Dan Lanning's in Tuscaloosa. And Dan Lanning wasn't anywhere near Tuscaloosa. He was at his home watching a movie with his kids. I just think, where do where do I get my news and can I trust it has never been more important. And it may be true that CNN knew something, but it might also be true that CNN was trying to be first trying to play that game or trying to be early and accidentally posted digitally at 12.43 in the morning or jumped the gun a little bit and still ended up being right. It's not a game I would play, but it might be what happened with CNN. We have a great show for you today. Tim Brando, broadcaster, ESPN, CBS Sports, Fox, longtime broadcaster, Got his start in broadcasting because his dad was a broadcaster. You've seen Tim Brando on college football, the NCAA tournament. He's going to join us coming up. Uh, he's agreed to spend a couple segments with us to talk about broadcasting and sports. It's a great story. He's a great interview. Also coming up at 4 o'clock, Jennifer Lee Chan will be with us. She's from NBC Sports Bay Area. She covers the 49ers on a daily basis. She spoke with Debo Samuel 
is he going to play? He did not practice. Is Debo playing? Jennifer Lee Chen will be joining us to talk about the Niners and the Lions at 4 o'clock. we got a great show for you. I appreciate that you're here. Stephen, what did you make of all of that CNN reporting, Doc Rivers? Like, you know, I didn't look at it sideways because I thought, you know, it's Doc and the Bucks. It makes sense, but... Man, that was weird. Yeah, it was weird, and it was weird how the play, you know, how Jamal Crawford, everyone reacted to it. Like, you know, is this a believable source? Because we all thought, like, Doc Rivers, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it seems like it would be a logical choice to have Doc Rivers be the coach. But then you you think about the source, and it's like, well, that, that doesn't make sense to break NBA news. So it is one of those things where you got to, for me, I just take everything with a grain of salt, and I got to hear, I got to hear it from numerous people, numerous, you know, re, you know, reputable people in that in that field of uh, a field whatever I'm listening to to finally believe something but it was weird John I will say it was really weird and I always tell people look if something's really happening I'm gonna have it on Twitter at John Canzano BFT I'm gonna have it on Instagram at John Canzano I'm gonna have it on this radio show 3 to 6 p.m. I'm gonna have it at johnconzano.com and you know if I don't have it in those places you might not want to believe it our next guest I've been dying to have on for a while. I'm a big fan of his work, Tim Brando, Fox Sports. Uh, you may remember him from ESPN or Sirius XM or CBS, but he has been all around college football, basketball, the NBA. He's got a wonderful career and is uh, active on social media as well. Tim Brando joining us. How are you, Tim? Tim, where's home? Shreveport, Louisiana, my hometown. I love that. You got yeah, your start I... there. Did you get your start in radio? Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. I um, I was the son of a song and dance man that also was a television man who had come from radio and the newspaper business. So there was really no denying what what I was going to do. Okay, <laughs> I was um, I was born to be a first year mouth somewhere, and um, that's sort of how they referred to my father. He was. Uh, he was as well known in in television in the fifties and sixties in Shreveport, Louisiana, as uh, uh, Ernie Johnson Sr., Jack Buck. Uh, let's see, um, let me think of a, 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 a Harry Carey, or oh, yeah. you name any of the great broadcasters who were second generation broadcasters. Their fathers that were national institutions, uh, and they followed uh, uh, the, the the role of their dad. Well, I did the same thing and. In my hometown, uh, people that are my age and older, 65 and older, they would, um, I get stopped all the time about and asked the question, are you Hub's son, Hub Brando's son? And, and, uh, and I, I'm, it's, a, it's a God wink every time it happens <laughs> because my father died young. He, he died really before I hit big uh, in 1984. I, I got my big break in 1985. My dad died. Uh, in 1984, he was only 58 years old, wow. but he lived the life of a guy in the business that had done, gosh, just an amazing amount. Um, and his dreams were not realized to the extent that mine have been. Uh, but I think that uh, after he was um, uh, sick with cancer, he lived vicariously through me on my journey. And without him, I certainly wouldn't have made uh, the inroads that I did at such an early age. And and kind of break in when I was 28, 29 years old, you know, in the um, uh, in the mid '80s, and, and, think- and he got, he got to see that, which meant a lot to me. It, it, he got to see some of those big breaks. He was living and working and 
uh, had gotten in the hotel business and was living out in Toluca Lake, California. He was a screenplay writer of sorts uh, at the end. Um, uh, had another son who's a half-brother of mine who was a child actor and um, is now working on cruise ships around the country. Uh, and like my dad, can sing and 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 play the keyboards and um he was also a, a tremendously successful child actor who did a lot of commercials did uh, a segment on Queen, uh when he was a kid was also in a movie that was a comedy spoof on uh friday the 13th called saturday the uh, 14th uh and his name is kevin brando and um and, and i've got cousins who followed uh, my dad's pursuits in a lot of other ways in production one was a television director. I mean, it's kind of amazing. My father was uh, a real role model for a lot of my extended family, too. But but he and I did high school football games together when I was 14 years old. Oh, and wow. uh, that's that really started my, my career as a player. He knew all my life what I wanted to do. And even though I was playing the drums and singing, you're too old to cut the mustard anymore, and me and my shadow with him on... Um, on the stage wearing a, a, a tuxedo, and uh, and he had a show band at that time, a traveling band called Hubrando and the Dreamers, and three local television shows in my hometown. He knew that I wanted to be a sportscaster, that this 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 idea of being on, um, uh, on the stage and being a, a crooner was not something, even though I had the talent to do it, it was not something I really wanted to do. I, I didn't like the late nights, and I, I could see enough of what was wrong with the young people he was trying to manage uh, that were part of his band. And um, I said, that's not for me, but, but sports would be. So, uh, but he could do a lot of things. He's still the most talented man that I was uh, ever around. And I miss him every day. Well, I think he's still with you. And I think, you, you know, obviously his, his impact on you has, you know, fueled your career. You mentioned 1984. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious what, what was making it? In Tim Brando's eyes, like, you know, when you say that you, you made it, what was making it? Calling a game, frankly, calling a game that my father could see in Burbank. You know, he was living <laughs> in Toluca Lake, you know, in that area. And uh, and I wanted to I wanted to be a national broadcaster. I, I fashioned myself as, you know, the next Kurt Gowdy, the next Keith Jackson, the, the guy that um, – the all-around 360 guy that could call any sport at any time. And um, in my earliest days, uh, when I did break through at ESPN, that's sort of what I did. I did a lot of, I did a lot of obscure sports that no one else would try or really thought was career suicide. I would take those opportunities and run with them. And um, it was a way to get attention. It was a way to get noticed. If you could do more things uh, in the business – then you were going to have greater opportunities. And having been raised in the Deep South, uh, not in a media uh, mecca uh, like L.A. or New York, Chicago, Boston, um, you know, or any of the major markets, you you really were going to have to 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 show people how much you really wanted to be uh, relevant. And and sometimes that meant taking on opportunities that were obscure, you know, like uh, uh, doing a, a, a bowling show or doing a, a, a ping pong show. I once did um, uh, at um, in Denver, uh, at South Denver in uh, Colorado Springs, I did uh, uh, I did a world championship uh, for Taekwondo. 
alive on ESPN. Now, uh, if you've ever been to a Taekwondo event, you know most of what happens there are guys are kicking other guys in their extremities. <laughs> and and I don't know how many times <laughs> I don't know how many times I had to fill while someone was tending to one of the competitors who had just been, you know, hit where the sun don't shine. And how many times can you do that and save face and not make light of it? Um, you know, it was it was it was it was an experience to say the least. But it was in those days ESPN was just happy to get any kind of sporting event on. And you know, I was I, I, it was a little bit akin, John, to the um, the cereal commercial uh, years ago when Mikey. Yeah, you know, we try. You know, the kids yeah. would say around the table, "Well, give it to Mikey. He'll, he'll try anything." Mikey well, likes it. Yeah, he'll try yeah, anything. At, I remember yeah, that. ESP, yeah, at ESPN, I think the production people there knew. Uh, and on those earliest days, it was Scotty Connell and Bill Fitz who would come over from NBC and CBS, and they kind of liked that about me. And they said, um, "Well, if Jim Simpson won't do it, or Roger Twible won't do it, or..." Um, uh, Sam Rosen, who was doing a lot of freelance work for ESPN back then, those guys don't want to do it. Give it to this kid, Brando. He'll do anything. And and so I did, you know. And it um, it really opened up some doors for me. You you know you ended up you were a studio host on Sports Center. You were you, you, right in the middle of ESPN's college football halftime show. And did you have a sense in the '80s and into the early '90s that Sports Center would become what it became? Well, yeah, I, that that I did uh, have a sense of it, um, but I didn't want to necessarily. I didn't see it as the. Uh, it was not my landing spot by any stretch. Sports Center was a means to an end. It was a stepping stone uh, opportunity. It was something to get me visibility, and uh, it was obviously important to the growth of ESPN at the time that I was hired. It allowed me to to move away from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is where I've been working at the CBS affiliate, to go there. And, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring this up, John, because I know you love college football. Yeah. But the fact that you mentioned all of that that I was doing and yet did not point out that I was the original host of College Game Day says a lot about the way uh, ESPN has projected the history of that show. Yeah. And most people would tell you that it didn't exist until 1993 when they took that show on the road. That's that's just not true. Um, maybe the greatest opportunity that Steve Bornstein gave me upon making me a full-time employee and moving me up to Connecticut, and I had no idea that this is what he had in mind. I, I didn't. Uh, but he had in the back of his mind this idea that he was going to create the first pregame show ever for college football, that college football had had halftime shows. But it had never had a full hour long pregame a la NFL today, uh, which had become, I think, the standard bearer for all pregame shows in 1975. And I was, you know, a high school senior going into college that year, and we were all mesmerized by what Brent and um, uh, Jimmy the Greek and uh, all of them were doing uh, at that time, Irv Cross, all of them. But, I mean, I didn't know. I thought I was going to go up there, do Sports Center, and then go out and call football games and basketball games because that's what I've been doing, <laughs> and maybe even some baseball because I love baseball as well and did some Major League Baseball. But uh, he told me shortly after I got there, you're my college football guy, and Berman's my NFL guy, and, and you're going to host college football today. And, and he already had Beano Cook ready to go. Beano, he had brought in from ABC – where he had worked with Jim Lampley on those shows, 
like uh, the Prudential College Scoreboard, where he did the halftimes and between game shows. And um, without Dino, there, there would not have been a game day. Uh, they, he brought him over specifically for that. And he, he had me in mind to be the host of that show. And I, and I loved it. And I, I, um, I would have actually preferred being the play-by-play guy. I, would, I thought that's what I was going to do. But he threw me into the studio, and, the, and, and College Game Day was born. And for two years, it was a blast. And Lee Corso, I did his audition tape. And, uh, and Lee became basically, at that, in that era, our Kirk Herbstreet. And uh, he hired the first blonde bombshell from Oklahoma, Kerry Ross, to be our reporter. And, um, and the, the age of having um, the so-called good-looking, uh, uh, hot, if you want to use that term, female in the, in the studio became, um, you know, the, the, the way we were going to conduct business in college football. So it's funny to me because I, I've, I've always said to my friends that are still there, um, you know, I love it when you guys get major stories written about the history of game day because it guarantees that I get some ink. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, you know, <laughs> guarantee. They always, at some point, have to say the show began with very little budget and only went on the road for national title games, and Tim Brando was the host. <laughs> but if they kind of, in recent years, especially uh, since they started taking the show on the road and it became an iconic program, and it was hardly close to being iconic when we were doing it. Uh, they've sort of forgotten the fact that um, the, the work of a lot of people that busted their chops with very little budget to work with uh, helped make uh, College Game Day something special. The players and the coaches at that time really did care deeply, and it, and it really helped, I think, uh, college football to have the kind of inroads that it did in its growth process post-1984 and the Supreme Court ruling that, that, that said that no longer could the NCAA cash in and monopolize uh, college football. Well, that, that, that Supreme Court ruling is why we're where we are today in a lot of respects. And without that ruling, uh, my, my job, uh, my career, and a lot of other careers probably would not have had an opportunity to take off at that time. All right, Tim, you have agreed to stick around for another segment. I have a lot of questions about your broadcast partners, um, the, the transition when you took leaps of faith with jobs and how that all worked out for you. And I also want to know the best advice that you ever received or what do you what advice do you give? More with Tim Brando, broadcaster. Stick around. We're talking to Tim Brando, longtime broadcaster, play-by-play broadcaster on Fox, ESPN, CBS. Tim, you know, you've had... A, ver- a variety of partners in the broadcast booth, including Lou Holtz, uh, Spencer Tillman, others. How much of the synergy or the chemistry between broadcasters is natural? How much can be learned? Honestly, John, I've never had anything but good things to say about anybody, anybody that I've ever worked with. Uh, and that's true in any sport that I've covered. Uh, it was challenging when I got that first opportunity to do my first ESPN game. And I'll never forget the lady that called me, Ellen Beckwith, who worked for Scotty Connell. And she, I, hell, I'd forgotten that I'd sent a tape to ESPN in like 1983 or whenever <laughs> it was. And she called me up. Um, she had a very thick Long Island accent. And it was one of these, hello, is this Tim Brando? And I'm like, yes, it is. Hi, this is Ellen Beckwith of ESPN. How are you? And I'm like, I'm fine. Uh, you caught me here at the office. Um, what can I do for you? And it's, uh, well, I have a ball game on January the 5th 
uh, at Virginia, and Jim Simpson's not going to be able to do it, but we've had your tape in, uh, in, in our closet here on the Keeper file, and we'd love for you to do a game with Dick Vitale. Oh, wow. Do you think you could work with Dick Vitale? And I thought, <laughs> well, let me check my schedule. <laughs> you know? And uh, I was doing LSU games in those days on a thing called Tiger Vision, uh, which was had started in 1981-82 when cable was really taking off. And in, in rural states like ours in Louisiana, it was, it was moving much faster, uh, much faster than it had in major markets where there was always a political battle over which cable company was going to come in and city councils were having issues seemingly everywhere. But um, I did have a game scheduled to do for LSU that, that particular Saturday. Uh, but I, I knew right away the athletic director and the basketball coach, Dale Brown, would have no problem if they, they knew I had a chance to do an ESPN game because it was a big deal. And Vitale had already become uh, a well-known uh, broadcaster for them by that time. He'd been on the air for about six years. And um, so I said yes to it, and I called my wife immediately, was ecstatic, and I, I went out and did the game. And my life really forever changed that day because that's when the phone started ringing and uh, I was going to take it to another level. But but I remember Ellen saying to me, you know, Dick is quite a guy now. He's going to – It's not, he's not like anybody else. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I said to her, well, Ms. Beck, with all due respect, I've watched uh, Mr. Vital, and, and I think uh, without question I can work with him. Okay, my job is the broadcaster role, and the broadcaster has to make it work, okay, to appease everyone in the audience, okay? Uh, uh, the analyst is going to appeal to some and not appeal to others. But it's my job uh, to make it sound as though we're having fun and that we've been together all our lives. And right away, she was like, well, that's real. That sounds, you're, you're confident. And I said, yeah, I, I'm, I am. I said, I've, I've spent my whole life waiting for your call today. So this is going to be good. And you know what? By halftime of that game, it was uh, Duke and Virginia. I'll never forget it. Krzyzewski's team was ranked number two in the country by Georgetown. And Virginia was a year removed from playing in the Final Four. And it's early January, okay? And um, it's halftime, and our producer, a young man named Bobby Feller, uh, not related to the pitcher Bobby Feller, but Bobby Feller, who went on to become a great producer of a lot of tennis through the years, He's asking, where, where is Dick? Uh, and I'm like, I, I don't know where he went, Bobby. Not only he went to the bathroom. And then I looked across the way, and Dick was on a landline. He was on the phone at the scores table. And he said, Tim, you got to run and get him. We're about to come back. And if you don't get him, we're not going to get the on-camera. Well, as a 29-year-old burgeoning talent, by God, I wanted my on-camera opportunity, right? Right. So I run, <laughs> I run and bring Dick. Uh, over and I'm like, as I'm bringing him over to the other side where we were stationed to do the on camera, I'm like, Dick, what what were you doing? And he said, I was just on the phone with Goff. He's talking about Garfinkel. Yeah. Okay, Howie Garfinkel. Yeah. He said, I was just on the phone with Goff. He says, you sound great with me, man. You're going to stick, baby. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, that's that's how insecure Dick was. He would call, and he's He's the guy that's been on for six years. He was already uh, a cult figure uh, among cable fans watching college basketball, which at the time was the biggest deal for ESPN. They had no football. 
they had no Major League Baseball or basketball. College basketball, in a lot of ways, made ESPN because it was it was really the only major event that uh, was not getting big bucks for broadcast rights at that time. Uh, and the tournament was just beginning to take off, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. And a lot of regular season games just weren't televised by anyone other than syndicators. So ESPN gave a big-time field of basketball, and basketball in turn gave them a, a big-time event. So uh, we got through with that game, and Vital, uh, to his credit, it was very nice to me. And so I can tell you love the game, and he, he told the people that mattered how much fun it was to work with me, and, and more jobs kept coming. And each contract for each game was like the size of a, a, door, again, a book that was 200 pages. And it was like you sign your life away to get $350, okay, for a game. And that's what I made. I still have the check stub of, um, of that first check that I got for doing the Duke-Virginia game on January 5th of 1985. So from that point forward, I've always felt like it's my job to make whatever the circumstances are with whomever I'm with to make that thing work because they're the analysts talking about the game. I have to adjust and adapt to them, not the other way around. Because you go from ESPN to CBS to Fox, and each time it works out for you. And I'm wondering, were they no-brainers, or maybe there's some people in our listening audience that have had to take a faith. You know, I obviously left a newspaper, went out on my own, and, you know, am writing yeah. and hosting this show. Like, you know, there's a little bit of anxiety in that, but you're, Tim Brando was betting on himself, wasn't he? Yeah, and I think more oftentimes than not, all of us have to do that, John. Um, there are very few careers that go the way of, you know, I mean, a lot of people, and people in your business, especially those that write about media, um, you know, they spend all of their time following, and understandably so. The, the guys that are doing the biggest games, uh, right now, I mean, without a doubt, it would be Jim Nance on CBS. It would be Kevin Burkhardt on, on Fox. And if not Kevin, it would be Gus, uh, whom I think the world of, um, and, and, and certainly Mike Tirico over at NBC and prior to that, Al Michaels. But, you know, not everybody's going to have that kind of career. Okay. In fact, there are going to be a lot more guys that have successful careers that, that are going to be like a working actor that maybe didn't get the lead in Gone with the Wind or didn't get the lead in Titanic, okay, but st maintained uh, a high profile and a level of relevance throughout his entire career. And that career was long-lasting. So I tell young people all the time that the thing you always have to remember is when you get to that professional fork in the road, you've got to think about um, how you got there and then – is it worth the risk <clears throat> to bet on yourself? And that happened to me several times. Um, uh, I made a career move away from ESPN uh, in the summer of 1989 when we were, we were trying to get a new contract done. And uh, I married a young Italian girl from Louisiana named Terry Glorioso, and uh, she did not want to live in Connecticut beyond 1990 and and we we lived up there for almost four years and honestly i didn't particularly care to live there anymore either uh sports center was a lot of fun and john saunders and i were best friends and we worked a lot of those shows together we were sort of the second wave of of talent that was brought into espn and 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 while i was held in high esteem 
um, I really felt like, hey, I want to be, I don't want to be a sports center lifer, and I don't want to be a game day lifer. I want to be calling games. I grew up wanting to be, as I said, like Keith Jackson, like Kirk Gowdy. In my era, the stars were the guys calling the games. And I still believe it takes much greater talent to be a play-by-play broadcaster of various sports than it does to read a teleprompter in a studio. Um, Now, the direction of the business was changing at that time, and to Steve Bornstein's credit, he saw me as a guy that could be one of his studio stars, and um, I fought that. You know, I, I I, I didn't see it that way. And it probably cost me financially to some extent uh, by by sort of sticking my foot in the ground and saying, you know what, I, I would love to stay here at ESPN, but not live in Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go home. And I remember Kurt Gowdy, who was my mentor. I looked up to him so much. I named my little brother, who was a great journalist, and unfortunately passed away in 2020 from cancer in Hong Kong. An internationally renowned journalist my brother Kurt, and uh, I named him after Kurt Gowdy because my mom and dad um, were, were having a baby that they didn't expect to have, and my older sister would have named the child if had it been a girl, and, and I got to name it because it wasn't a girl, it was a boy, and I named him Kurt after Gowdy. Well, fast forward to 1982, the Final Four, um, a, a local radio broadcaster uh, in New Orleans, and I'm, I'm asked to speak. To, to, to interview Kurt Gowdy on my nightly sports talk show. And Gowdy was, of course, the host still of American Sportsman. And he was coming in to do the, uh, the Final Four uh, with Kaywood Ledford on Westwood One Radio. And uh, his mentorship of me began that weekend. Uh, he took me to breakfast the morning of the Saturday semifinals, and he spoke to me for three hours and really took me under his wing. And, and I'll tell you, John, it was um, it was a gift from heaven to, to have that opportunity, to have that moment. And we maintained contact throughout my career uh, until he passed away. And his brother, I mean, his his son, Kurt Jr., uh, produced me when I did the Little League World Series for him in 94. Um, I don't mean to digress, but I, I had to tell you that because it's meaningful to me. Of course. But I remember I remember at that moment in the, in the summer of 89 when I was making that deal, I talked to Mr. Gowdy, and he said, Tim, he says, you want it all. And he said, yeah, there's risk involved, but if they want you, they will get you on your terms. So bet on you. And I did. Tim, before I cut you loose here, I always ask uh, our guests, and I particularly want to ask you because of all the influences you've had, the best advice you have ever received. You know, what comes to mind when I, when I talk about the advice that you got in life or career or otherwise? Well, I'll go back to Kurt Gowdy. That day uh, at the at the Final Four, I had had him on my show on the Friday night before the Saturday semifinals. Now, I'm credentialed for my second Final Four. I'd gone to the – my first Final Four was in 1981 because LSU had made it in Philadelphia. That was the one where President Reagan was shot um, before the, the championship, and it was also the year that they had the last consolation game. But in 82 – if I'm not working in New Orleans and I don't have my own show on WGSO radio, I don't get the chance to have Kurt Gowdy on my program. But after we met and I got to tell him that I named my little brother after him, you know, you can imagine he's looking at me and I'm telling him this stuff. <laughs> and he's like, all right, all right, all right, kid, listen, 
uh, enough already, okay? You don't have to tell me all this. And I'm like, no, Mr. Gowdy, I'm going to call my house. I'd really like your namesake to get to hear your voice. And when I got him off the phone with my little brother, his eyes started to, to tear up. I mean, it really got to him, John. And and it's and it really humanized him to me. Now, you got to remember, he had... He was about three years removed from calling the Cowboys and Steelers Super Bowl in 79, 78, 79. Uh, he had just been cut loose from CBS television uh, in 81, 82. He was in the uh, twilight, really, of his career, but American sportsman was still his thing. And I loved him, okay? And he wasn't terribly old. It was hard, I think, for a lot of broadcasters of that generation, even the best to hold on to their jobs past 60, okay? It's not like today where you see a guy like Al Michaels doing it until he's 80 or Brent did it until he was almost 80. And Byrne, you know, God bless Byrne, who did it for such a long period of time. And uh, and as it turned out, Byrne turned out to be uh, uh, maybe a, a greater influence in my um, in my professional career as I got older than I ever imagined anyone could be. Uh, and Vern was never really a number one guy. I mean, when he got the SEC play-by-play job, uh, it was a demotion for him. Dick Inberg had just been brought over from NBC to do our number two games behind Jim Nance. So, I mean, it was a big, big deal at that particular time for Mr. Gowdy to tell me what he did. But he got off the phone. He was pretty emotional. And he said, Tim, I want to take you to breakfast tomorrow. Why don't you come to the Hyatt and meet with me? And I'm telling you, John, he told me things about what the industry was doing and and what it was going to be doing that enlightened me in ways you would never under, uh, comprehend. All guys that were doing radio when they were 25 or 26 years old and maybe doing play-by-play on the side to make some, some, some uh, uh, extraneous income were always worried that if we get a TV gig and a major job, uh, I'll have to give up my play-by-play, and I really didn't want to do that. And Kurt told me, he says, have you, have you applied for jobs at local television stations in big markets? I said, yeah. Have you gone in for interviews at some of them? I said, yes, sir, I have. And he said, don't take any right now. Don't leave. He said, you're, you're working in radio. You've got your own show. You've been creative with it, I can tell. He said, you're doing play-by-play for a major college. And he said, this, this cable thing, okay, this is 1982. He says, this cable thing, this ESPN deal, it's going to take off. It's probably going to be the biggest story to hit sports media in, in, in this generation. He said, if you keep doing this and you can keep making tapes and sending them out, you're, you're going to get an opportunity. And that way you can do what you really love and make a lot of money. And he says, you might even be able to do what you love and live where you want. And not everybody can do that. He says, you strike me as the kind of guy that wants it all, the white picket fence, the wife, the kids, the grandkids. I said, yes, sir, that's me. <laughs> and he said, well, this, this, is, this is advice you need to pay attention to. And guess who the first person that called me was after I did that game with Big Vitale in 1985? It was okay. Kurt Gowdy. There you go. See, kid, what did I tell you? And <laughs> You know what, uh, John, when, when, when I left CBS abruptly uh, in 2013, it was as much my doing as it was um, 
anyone's. I, I, I made some judgment errors in reaction to losing a radio show that was being televised on their sports network, and uh, I didn't react uh, as favorably as perhaps I should have because I, what they were doing with my, my show had nothing to do with my broadcasting career. But I, um, I made some mistakes in the way I reacted to it, and ultimately we agreed to divorce. And when we did, John, I'm 58 years old, and now I've worked at Turner, I've worked at ESPN, I've been at CBS, and I never thought about leaving CBS, but what I had, some, some things that I had said were consequential, and it led to a, um, a divorce between CBS and me. And when the dust settled and we parted amicably, and we did, to, to CBS's credit, they were very, very good to me. Uh, they asked me, is there anything we can do on our end? And I said, yeah, let me handle the narrative on my exit because I still have a career here that I want to see to the end. And I know I've got a lot of tread on my tires. And uh, when Fox vetted me, um, they were very favorable. And um, that meant a great deal. Tim Brando, you're the best. I appreciate you. Wish you uh, luck the rest of the way. And obviously I'm a big fan of your work. And uh, so thank you for spending some time with us. Oh, John, I'm flattered that you asked. Thank you. I, I too, enjoy what you do. And um, for the last 16 to, to 20 months, you've been keeping me up to speed on what the hell's going to happen <laughs> out west in right? college football. Well, so buckle up. <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Take care, John. All right, take care. There he goes. Tim Brando, you can catch him uh, on your television. Uh, there, you learned something. I mean, started the first sports center uh, college football game day all you know his experience with the ncaa tournament fantastic stuff we're going to pivot to the nfl playoffs jennifer lee chan nbc in the area she covers the niners nfc title game we'll take a deep dive on it next well i'm happy for justin herbert former university of oregon quarterback who had three full-time head coaches while he was in college i thought that was Like, not enough was made over the fact that Herbert sort of endured an era of uncertainty at Oregon. Going from Mark Helfrich to Willie Taggart to Mario Cristobal, then to the NFL. And then it was uh, Anthony Lynn and Brandon Staley. And now, Adam Schefter and others reporting that Jim Harbaugh is leaving Michigan to accept the head coaching job with the Los Angeles Chargers. Chargers get their coach. The national champions have about 72 hours to fill Jim Harbaugh's seat before everybody jumps into the transfer portal. This is good for Herbert. It's a win for him. Three full-time coaches in college, three more full-time coaches in the NFL. I think Harbaugh fits his style. And, in fact, I think one of the reasons why Harbaugh probably wanted that job is because he knew he had a quarterback in Justin Herbert. We'll talk about that plus the NFC Championship game. 49ers, Detroit Lions, Sunday. I'm excited about the game. I'm excited to uh, see what happens, see if the 49ers can play a little better. Our next guest, Jennifer Lee Chan, is a beat reporter, covers the 49ers for NBC in the Bay Area, NBC Sports Bay Area. Uh, went to USC, 
We've had her on before. Retired professional wrestler. You may that may ring a bell. Jennifer Lee Chan joining us now. Jennifer, thank you for making time for us. Um, give us, you know, before we get into the Niners and the NFC title game, your reaction to uh, Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers. Like, how does that strike you? I actually thought it would be a perfect fit when I heard that just because of the way Jim Harbaugh operates. And, you know, he's got tons of quarterback experience. And watching what he did when he arrived with the 49ers, he's a fixer. Like, he's got, you've got a lot of talent on the roster with the Chargers, and I think he can just go in there and coach them up well. And I think it's only going to lead for to better production for Justin Herbert, a better team atmosphere. I just think it's the perfect fit for Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, and I keep thinking about, you know, he kind of did what he needed to do in – in uh, college athletics by winning the national championship at Michigan. I was at the title game, and in the post-game news conference, he slipped a little bit. He said, now I can sit at the big kids' table. I won a national championship. And then under his breath, he said, I haven't won a Super Bowl. And and then he kind of continued, and I thought, did anybody else catch that? Like, you know, you 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 were there in his time in San Francisco, and you, you saw it, and, you know, certainly the aftermath of it. Um, you know, he, he knocked on the door in – flirted with it but how did the four how do the 49ers view that era now looking back at the harbaugh era looks like we got a little uh Technical difficulties here. All right, let's oh, let's get <laughs> her. Do you, why don't you guys grab her and put her on line one or two, and and we'll bring Jennifer back on it. We're having some phone issues that I think related back to yesterday. We're having the very same issue we had yesterday with the phones, and I think we now have sort of figured out what is going on. It's on our end, not on Jennifer's end. Uh, and I was dying to hear the answer to her question. I got to be honest with you, Stephen. I just didn't know if my headset was it working. Or it, it was on uh, our end or her end or whatnot. Uh, let's have her call back in on line one or two, guys, instead of just repeating what we just did and having her on the back line. So I think it's better just to do it that way. And if we're having a technical issue, we'll deal with it, get the engineers on it. But I think the uh, regular call lines are working and our back lines are not. So I apologize to the listeners for the inconvenience there and certainly uh, apologize to our guest who uh, is giving us her time and uh, – and uh, expertise, only to find that uh, there's a technical issue. Just to, a little bit on the Jim Harbaugh front while we get Jennifer back on the line. Um, look, I, I think Justin Herbert, when he was drafted, the questions about him were all about you know his ability to be a leader and be vocal. And I can remember in the run-up to that draft, like over and over again, as it, as it happens with every athlete, the draft ends up, you know, every athlete being nitpicked. But in the end... We now see Herbert, you know, is Justin Herbert in the NFL the same way he was in college. I think the rest of that organization just needs to kind of form around him. We got Jennifer back. Uh, Jennifer, really sorry for that. We're having some issues with our phone lines. But let's go back. I'll ask you the question again. The Harbaugh era in San Francisco, how is it viewed by the 49ers now in the wake of it? I think the 49ers fans have always been big fans of Jim Harbaugh. I mean, what he did for the organization, taking them back to a Super Bowl while it was – unsuccessful I think the fact that he turned the club around was huge and I think that's exactly what he can do for the the Chargers I mean it's just such a perfect fit for him he's a great quarterbacks coach you know what he did for Alex Smith same thing I think he could do it for Justin Herbert and just the fact that he is kind of a fixer there's a lot of talent there 
I don't know that he could necessarily, I mean, I, I'm not saying that he couldn't or that he could, but there's so much talent there already. He doesn't have to worry about a general manager building up the roster, kind of padding it. Like, of course, they need to do some work on the roster, but he's got so much talent there already. He's going to be able to turn the club around very quickly. Yeah, in a quarterback-centric game, I'm sure looking at all the jobs that were open, Justin Herbert makes that job a little more attractive. Uh, Jennifer Lee Chan is our guest. Uh, you can catch her covering the 49ers uh, for NBC in the Bay Area, NBC Sports Bay Area. Uh, Jennifer, let's pivot to the NFC title game. Um, Niners looked rusty. What What did you make of the divisional round? And, and was it the weather? Was it the layoff? Uh, what do you make of it? I think there was a lot of different factors across the board. I mean, for Brock Purdy, it was there was weather. It was wear the glove, don't wear the glove, adjusting to wearing it, adjusting to not wearing it. The weather was a factor. I think there was, um, you know, the fact that Debo Samuel went out. They had a lot of game planning surrounding, you know, Debo Samuel's appearance in the game and what he can do to change how the offense works. So I think there were a lot of different factors on why it wasn't a smooth game, but at least they came out of there with a win. Uh, you know, different plays. I know you guys are all familiar with Diamador Lenore up there. He's been playing really well, but his counterpart, Ambry Thomas, had a tough game. So um, I think just across the board, they need to play better from special teams to run defense to the offense. So I, if they can pull it together this week and just not make mistakes, I think they've got a good chance against the Lions. Yeah, and I keep thinking, you know, they, you know, that layoff, the fact that, you know, they were trying to rest guys late, it's tough to come back from that. And frankly, the Packers were pretty good. You uh, tweeted about Debo Samuel. You saw him in the locker room uh, today. Uh, what was his mood? What did he say? Um, he's been really upbeat. I mean, I saw him after the game as well. And compared to the game in Cleveland, it was week six when he had the shoulder, the fracture in his shoulder, hairline fracture. That game afterwards, he needed help putting on a jacket. So it was really painful. And that was after the game, you know, when they still have a lot of adrenaline going, it was painful for him then. So after the game on Saturday against the Packers, he actually took a shirt, put his hands over his head and pulled it down. So much less pain for him following this game. So I knew it would be not as serious. The last time in week six, he missed two games after that. So it looks like he's in good spirits, and I'm sure that he's going to play on Sunday. Yeah, and I think, you know, for Niner fans, he adds such an element to the offense. He takes some pressure off George Kittle. It takes pressure off the run game, makes everything easier for Brock Purdy. Um, the Niners could not have been happy with that performance, although they win the game, and it is about winning and advancing. Did Kyle Shanahan talk? Has he talked more about this that this week and, you know, how, the, you know, how they might, play better this this Sunday? Uh, I think they're definitely dialed in for this Sunday. Uh, they really closed the door on the Packers game. They evaluated it on Sunday and Monday, and they really moved forward to what they have to do to game plan against the Detroit Lions. I mean, they've got a big task coming up ahead. Jared Goff has been playing really well. Amon Ross St. Brown is a great receiver, and they've also got a run game. They've got a you know two-headed run game that's coming from for them, and so their run defense that had been so good up until that game against the Packers – uh, I think it's 51 straight games where they did not allow a 100-yard rusher, and it happened on Sunday or Saturday against the Green Bay Packers. So they are dialing it back up, making sure that does not happen to them again. Now the game, you know, sort of was reminiscent of some recent years where you know the Niners just played to the wire, and maybe it's reflective of the NFL. But you know, I thought it was good for the for the team to get an opportunity to have to close a game out and. 
you know, get in a fierce game because I think these last two games, if they do get two games, are going to be like that. Did do you think it it was beneficial for them to be in a close game? Oh, absolutely. I think you know a lot of them said after the game they're battle tested now. You know, they came from behind, which is something that you know Kyle Shanahan and Brock Purdy had not done before. Coming back from being down into the fourth quarter, a game-winning drive, just building their confidence, knowing that they can do it if they have to. Weaknesses on this 49ers team. I don't think it's Brock Purdy, but you cover this team. Where do you see sort of the weak links that Detroit might try to attack? I mean, if you look at last week's game, it's definitely Ambry Thomas. I and mean, He had just such a rough game. He was coming back from a hand injury. He hadn't played since New Year's Eve. So he had a lot of time off and without practice. So he had surgery on his hand. He came back and he's, you know, he said to him, he said himself today to me that, you know, it was all about confidence. He wasn't playing like himself. And now getting that game rep in, even though he cost two really huge penalties on third down, he knows that he can play better and he is expecting that of himself going forward. Uh, We're talking to Jennifer Lee Chan. You can find her covering the 49ers. Uh, on Twitter and also with uh, NBC Sports in the Bay Area. Um, This team, has it captured the fan base? You've been there for a while. You've grown up. You've seen these teams and covered them for a while. There have been some other years where maybe they went to the Super Bowl or certainly in their past in the 80s and 90s where they they were great. Has the fan base, is the fan base all on board with this team? Oh, absolutely. And I think all of that talk about Brock Purdy not being good enough is only outside the building. I think fans love him. He's such a good kid. He's level-headed. He's humble. He's a good leader, especially for being as young as he is. And he's proven to them that he can take them the distance. So, you know, if it wasn't for his elbow injury in the NFC Championship game last season, who knows where they would be, you know, whether they would have made it to the Super Bowl or not. But I think he just inspires confidence, and he's such a hard worker. I think one of the things that's the key to this locker room is that the best players are the hardest workers. You look at Nick Bosa, Christian McCaffrey, um, Brock Purdy. They're all such preparation junkies. Fred Warner, they call Eric Armstead the blueprint because he studies so much film. So because of all the leaders on the team are such hard workers, it just trickles down. You've got you know young guys, rookies like Jair Brown, who also are very mature, who are ready to take over whenever they need to. So I think really the the reason that the fan base loves them is that the that the players inside seem genuinely confident, genuinely smart, and care about the team, and I think they really do. Now, the Detroit Lions come into this game looking like a team that is playing with house money. They're playing loose. They you know, probably, you know, very few people expected them to be in this position. It was supposed to be the Eagles. It was supposed to be the Cowboys. Does that give any advantage to the Lions coming in against a team that, you know, many viewed as the favorite in the NFC? I mean, I think it's always uh, teams love to be under the radar. It kind of reminds me of the, the 49ers when they were in 2019 when they first really had their, you know, their the beginning of this run. That was like the fifth of fourth of the beginning of their four NFC championship games in five years. So the confidence that that built and just the fact that they were unexpected to be to go as far as they did. I think teams love that. They're going to bring lines are going to bring their best game to Levi Stadium. They have nothing to lose because no one expected it from them. So, you know, they walk away 
with a loss, the season's still a success. If they walk away from a win, it's even better heading to the Super Bowl. So I think no matter how you slice it for the Lions, it'll be, you know, chalked up as a success for the, the for the franchise. But for the 49ers, if they don't make it to the Super Bowl, I think it will be disappointment. Yeah, and I, I kind of worry about that pressure and how it might weigh on Kyle Shanahan. Uh, Jennifer Lee Chan with us, uh, NBC Sports Bay Area. Um, the potential Super Bowl matchup, I can't erase Christmas Day in the Baltimore Ravens from my mind. Help me feel better about that. I grew up a Niner fan, Jennifer. <laughs> uh, just, uh, you know, they did not play their best football. I think Brock Purdy didn't make great decisions, but I also think that that was kind of a learning experience for them. That three-game skid earlier in the season did, I mean, honestly did wonders for them, not being overconfident knowing that they need to put in the work and keep their heads down. And I think that, you know, same thing for that Baltimore Ravens team. Kind of better that it happened then than it happened later or, you know, if they play each other again. So I think it's a learning lesson for all of them not to be too cocky, not to be too overconfident. And I think it came at a really good time for them. Best interview in the locker room. Who are you going to? Oh, they're they're all so good. Uh, George Kittle is amazing. He always is willing to talk about anything. Uh, Trent Williams gives so much insight on anything. Uh, Nick Bosa is fun to talk to. Fred Warner is super open. Really just a, the locker room all around is so good. And I think that because, you know, that's because of John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, and it's just a trickle down. Both of those two guys are fantastic to talk to. And, you know, they treat everybody with respect, and I think that just trickles down to the locker room. And especially as a female going into a men's locker room, I, I don't feel any bit of discomfort at all. They all are very respectful, and it's a really great environment. And I think that's why they win. That's good to hear. And, you know, and I read the athletic story, I think it was last week or this week, about sort of the the mindset that they took when they were building the roster, and they were looking for guys who just love to play and have the joy for the game. And that's easy to say. Like, you and I can say that. Hey, they love the game, whatever. But you can really see it. Like, when George Kittle drops a pass even, the expression on his face as he's going back to the huddle is, you know, like the rest of us when, you know, we step on a Lego in the living room. Like, you know, we we a very relatable team. And, and I, you know, I, I just wonder sometimes how that, you know, it's not accidental, is it? No. They went after guys who love the game of football and – you know, the ones that love preparing, the ones that love studying the game. Kyle Shanahan's offensive system is very intense. And so it takes guys sometimes a year, sometimes two years to really get it down. Now, Brock Free, who. I believe we have lost Jennifer's phone again, just momentarily. I'm going to pop her right back on. Are you there now? Yeah. Really? Yeah. There she goes. She drops. Well, we're going to commercial break anyway. Maybe, uh, Judah, we can call her back. Thank her for coming on. She's just ready to go to break. I really am sorry about the uh, phone situation, but uh, we got about 12 good minutes there and great insight. I want you to leave it here. We got more ahead. Anna's coming on the show. Uh, we'll talk more about Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers. Uh, that now being widely reported, I think that's great for um, Justin Herbert. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see what he can do with a head coach who we know won't be cycled out in two years or isn't coaching for his job. Certainly, Harbaugh has proven when you give him a quarterback, 
the first thing he's going to do is go out and he's going to get an offensive line and put a run game together. Uh, I think it's kind of an exciting time to be a Chargers fan. Uh, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton probably going bananas this week. Uh, I think it's a great move, uh, in a, and it's really exciting to see what the Chargers are doing. Anna's popping into the studio, that and more. Leave it here. I feel really bad for our guests who we bring on and then we essentially hang up on with our phone lines. I really apologize to the listeners who had to uh, have uh, yesterday's interview with Michael Lev. It happened today. It happened with Jennifer Lee Chan, who's covering the 49ers. And um, I, I, don't, I just don't know if we should have a guest again until we get this phone thing fixed. Um, you know, if, uh, I usually don't share the technical issues with the listeners because why? Because it's too much like your regular life, right? Your Wi-Fi's out at home or your phone line's not working. Who wants to hear about that? But I just I want you tuned in to what's going on. Anna, you've popped into the studio. What happens in TV when you have a technical issue? You can't hear. You got no teleprompter. You know, you, you queue up the video. It's the wrong video. What do you do? Uh, it happens all the time, and you just kind of roll with it. You do the best that you can. Uh, I always say, especially like like in a breaking news situation, when things aren't working right or things happen that are unexpected, that's where the on-air people actually make their money because uh, you gotta fake it till you make it, and you gotta ad lib and you know just keep rolling with it as best you can. Yeah, but, we're trying, but mm-hmm. I'm afraid to bring a guest on now. Yeah, that's you know? hard. I, it's just gonna dump out on them i know it is yeah you know yeah uh but uh you know it's almost like we should play russian roulette have the callers call in and then they win a prize if the phone line dumps on dumps them out you know what i mean let's see how many callers we go through caller seven caller eight no oh caller nine wins he's going to the blazer game you know um it, it, i never try i try not to make it the problem of the listener sure but when they're hearing it mm-hmm. and they hear like an extended silence um, you can't help it, yeah. you know, you just can't help it. And, you know, we'll continue to do the best possible show that we can do. And the engineers, I know they're working hard and working on the issue. So uh, we'll get that fixed. We can still take your calls, though. I want your reaction to Justin Herbert getting Jim Harbaugh as a coach. The, Har- the Chargers have hired Harbaugh. That, I had a hard time spitting that out. The, the Los Angeles Chargers have hired Jim Harbaugh to be the next coach. I want your reaction to this. Does he win in with the, I want to say San Diego, does he win in Los Angeles? Does Does Herbert finally get himself a coach he can count on? Remember, one year with Mark Helfrich, fired. One year with Willie Taggart, ditched. Two years with Mario Cristobal, then off to the NFL where Anthony Lynn was his coach, fired. Brandon Staley, his coach, fired. Interim coach, gone. Now Jim Harbaugh. Justin Herbert, this is what he's done. He's not going to know what to do with a coach who's got some runway in front of him. So I want your reaction. 503-417-7575. Is this good for Justin Herbert? Do the Chargers win big finally? I've got friends I grew up with who are diehard Charger fans. Do, do they win big finally? And what does it mean for Michigan? What does Michigan do? Does Kalen DeBoer, is he kicking himself now for going to Alabama instead of waiting to see if the Michigan job opened up? Jonathan Smith, uh, by default, is he looking around going, I could have been at Arizona, I could have been at Washington, I could have been at Michigan. Instead, he's in East Lansing. 
I want your reaction at 503-417-7575. Stephen, um, you, you know, we briefly talked about it and touched on it, but Harbaugh to the Chargers, what does that do for you? Yeah, I mean, it, for me, it's a great fit for Justin Herbert and Chargers fans. Like, I, you know, he's the most stable coach they've had since, what, Marty Schottenheimer, I would guess. Like, he's been successful at every level he's coached at, so I, I don't see why he wouldn't be successful now. Uh, especially when you got a guy as talented as Justin Herbert and some of the guys that they have on defense and and the talent they have in the on uh, the skill position. So I mean, it's a, I think it's a positive for all things uh, Los Angeles Chargers, all things Justin Herbert. And you know what? I think this really puts a lot of pressure now on Herbert. You know, I I, I think I always questioned it a little bit because his fourth quarter stats are much worse than his first three quarter stats. How much do you put on coaching? How much do you put on Herbert? I don't know the correct answer. But now it's time to win. And if he can't if Herbert can't win with Jim Harbaugh, I think then maybe it's time to question, okay, how good is real how really is good is Justin Herbert? Like I think there's real questions about it. So it, it's kind of put up or shut up time for Herbert. And I think for Harbaugh, you know what? You look at the open coaching available available jobs right now in the NFL. I think the Chargers is the best one right now. Just with, you get the talent of Justin Herbert, and you get that guy, and you get you know a team that wants to invest in more players and want to win because they're trying to stay relevant in that market. So I, I think it's a win for everybody. I think everybody you know is going to get the best out of each other. And now we got to figure out well, you know, what, is Justin Herbert really the guy, or is he just another really talented player that puts up stats, but it doesn't affect the uh, the wins and losses? Well, I saw him go to a Rose Bowl, win a Rose Bowl, so I know he can win big games, and I know he can lead a team, and I know he's a really good player. I think the the beauty of Harbaugh to the Chargers is that it won't all be on Justin Herbert. And I felt at times with the Chargers that they were leaning in that direction. It was almost like the Oregon Ducks were leaning in his direction. We can remember the play calling with Marcus Arroyo at, at coordinator. It was often you know a run on first down, a run on second down, and then on third and long, uh, Herbert, go ahead and, and figure it out and bail us out of this bad situation. It became that in the NFL with the Chargers. I don't think Harbaugh is going to do that to him. I think Harbaugh is going to want to run the football. I think he's going to want to play defense. And I think he's going to want to use Justin Herbert as a supplementary piece, albeit a really good one. Now here, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, the voice of sports in Southern California, joined us about uh, 10 days ago. And I asked him about the coaching situation with the Chargers. Here's what Hacksaw said. I feel bad for Justin Herbert at the end of the day because I think the organization has just failed him miserably. Can they fix it? Yeah, probably. Right guy. Very high draft pick. Very high second round draft pick. But they got this massive salary cap problem, so it, it's not going to be easy to fix. And again, now we're, now we're dealing with who's going to be the general manager? Who's going to have the authority? I think it's got to be somebody outside the last name Spanos, but I don't know that they'll they'll give the guy coming in the front door the opportunity to be the decision maker on player personnel. Well, the guy coming through the front door is definitely going to be the decision maker on player personnel. That's another thing you can bank on: the Chargers and the Spanos family going all in with Harbaugh, giving him that control. Meanwhile, Harbaugh's old team, one of his old teams, going to the NFC Championship game on Sunday. I'm excited about this game. The Niners uh, about a touchdown favorite in most places. Uh, in the AFC title game, you got the Ravens and you got the Chiefs. And I'm I'm kind of debating which is the better game. And I feel like I'm biased because I definitely am going to watch both games, but I'll probably have a little more of a fan bent as I watch the Niners and the Lions. So I need a more objective opinion here. Steven, what's the better game? 
the, the better game is the is is the Chiefs and the Ravens. Like that's the game I want to see, and and I think the Lions 49ers is going to be closer than the seven point spread, and I think the Ravens Chiefs might be bigger than the three and a half point spread. I think the Ravens may win by you know double digits, two two scores, but. That's the game I want to see. It's the question of can Lamar Jackson really knock off the knock off the champs in Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, or is this just uh, you know? I guess they already are a dynasty, but is this like the middle of the dynasty where we're thinking, man, this is the next Belichick and Brady? Like they're just going to get it done no matter what, no matter how good or bad this team actually is, whether they have weapons or not on the offensive side. Like those those weapons the Chiefs have, John, they had the most drops in the NFL this season, and then all of a sudden in the playoff game against the Bills, no drops. Just on, on fire, Travis Kelsey finds his old self, and the Bills are the team with all the drops. Maybe it's just the new, a brand-new New England Patriots is what Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid is. So I'm excited to see that because I don't think that this Chiefs offense is very good, but it may be one of those things where Patrick Mahomes is so good that they just get the job done. So I'm really intrigued uh, by this Ravens-Chiefs game in Baltimore. Patrick Mahomes' second road playoff game. Can he get that done? I cannot wait to watch that one. I think this one could be ugly for Mahomes. It has the potential. I think the Ravens are disruptive. They play angry. They will, uh, at the point of attack, just, uh, you know, beat you up and mess you up. And, again, Christmas Day is stuck in my head because they did it to the Niners. And that is a high-level, very physical Niners team that they pushed around on Christmas Day. So I kind of am looking at Kansas City going, are they going to be able to run the ball in this game? And is Mahomes going to be running for his life? Now, he could still make plays running for his life, but he doesn't have Tyreek Hill out there anymore. And there's a lot of Travis Kelsey. Um, they've been more run-heavy, I feel like, um, than maybe in some other years and ran the ball well against the Bills. But I'm left, uh, I'm left kind of but- thinking about you know, their game plan, and it feels like it's Mahomes against that defense. Yeah, does it feel like the Lions, and this may be bad to say, but it feels like they're just almost happy to be there. Like, they like they shouldn't belong there right now, where you look at the Niners, the Ravens, the Chiefs. Like, those are three brands that you know are going to be competing every year, where the Lions have just come, you know, not come out of nowhere, but I, I don't think really a lot of people expect them to be in the NFC title game this year. Yeah, let's talk about that, because Dan Campbell – Coach of the Lions. Here he is talking about Jared Goff and his leadership. He does stay calm. He can just hang in there. He'll get in a rhythm. He'll start finding some throws uh, and uh, and get hot for us. He did call you the greatest leader he's ever been around, so do you take any credit for that? I don't take credit for that. That's, uh, that is the uh, – it's flattering, man. It's, uh, you know – I got a tremendous amount of respect for golf, so you know when he says something like that, that means something to me. Um, but I'm fortunate to be around a number of great men and women in this building, so uh, and and to be able to coach those guys is an honor. I like the Lions are going to try to run the ball and then use Jared Goff as uh, you know as as you know. He, I feel like he's he's got some limits to what he can do, but he's incredibly accurate and. Has a little Bo Nix in his game in that he is very accurate in this intermediate game. And, you know, I, we saw it at Cal when he was in college. We've seen it in the NFL with the Rams. He's played in big games. I think, I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be um, closer than expected. I'm not sure on the just happy to be there angle. I'm not sure. I, I have a hard time with Dan Campbell as the coach thinking he's just happy to be there. He's going to, like, you know, eat a shoe or something during the news conference. He's kind of a he's a he's a tough guy and he's in the moment, very in the moment. But I just think they have a ceiling and I and I and 
anybody else kind of think that they were fortunate to kind of get the matchup they got against the Buccaneers last week? I think if they would have got, you know, an Eagles team playing better in early season form or a Cowboys team playing better in early season form or a 49ers team, I think they lose last week. And, and, you know, if the Cowboys would have won that game, now it's easy to say that. It would have been a road game for the Lions to play, you know, in their first big road game that they've had. So I'm with you. I don't know that it's – that's why I said I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. They're just happy to be there, but it seems like it's three, you know, elite squads, and then you got the one off to the side. Like, okay, I, I don't understand why you're quite here yet, but it makes somewhat sense. The just happy to be there argument. We'll see what happens with that. Um, from you know, from a perspective of our sports market and the news today of Harbaugh to the Chargers, there's part of me, and I don't know if anybody else made this leap. I thought about Chargers fans, and Anna, I thought a little bit about you as a Blazer fan mm-hmm. growing up in this market. Yeah. There are moments when your franchise is going for it where you get excited. Now, the Chargers don't have a lot of great history. You know, they've had some good runs different years, years ago. Went to a Super Bowl one time, uh, got boat raced by the Niners, but went to the Super Bowl. And, and uh, you know, I think back to the Blazers Blazer fans deserve a thrill like the Charger fans are getting today. You know, they're they're getting a national championship coach. The Charger fans who don't have a lot of hope in their history are getting some hope. I think that's it kind of to me it underscores the fact that the Blazers organization is not delivered. Yeah, and that's why I mean I think it's would be really hard to sell tickets right now cuz what are you selling? You know, nationally the Blazers are talked about in jokes and they're considered, you know, I think I read an article today where they were considered the cellar dwellers of the NBA. Like that hurts to be somebody who grew up in this city and, you know, attach myself to this team. Um, the state of where things are for that team right now, I I don't know. It, I, I don't want to say that I'm at the point of despair, but it has just been so long since there has been that glimmer of hope that uh, I, I'm starting to wonder if it will ever happen. They're 12-31. and 31. Of course, they lose. They lost last night. Kind of a weird, wonky ending as Chauncey Billups was trying to get a timeout. Uh, according to the replays, he didn't get it. He got a double technical foul. They end up giving up a lead. Um, Stephen, how, do, how did you view Chauncey Billups' and his uh, ejection and late-game antics last night because it disappointed me. I thought there was a lack of poise there, especially for a team that doesn't have a lot of wins. Yeah, it it showed a lack of leadership for sure because usually Chauncey's not even like aggressive when he's talking to the refs. He doesn't get technicals very often, and so for that to happen and for him to run onto the court and the first technical he got called for is because he made contact with the official twice. They let the first one go, and then he made contact with the same official again, and so they teed him up. Then they gave a second technical because he just kept following the ref onto the court. You know, you can't be running on the court. Like, there wasn't a timeout on the play. They had called a double dribble. That was it, and he just kept going on the court. It was a real weird situation there by Chauncey to get thrown out of the game when the Blazers are up by one with about 15 seconds left. Like, you're still... Even if it is a bad call, right? It's a bad call no matter how you how you look at it. Oklahoma City has the ball. The Blazers are still up by one. You're still in the better position. You have to be better than that than get a double technical in that spot if you're really trying to win. And, uh, you know, 
So I don't know. I don't know if it was this thing of, uh, you know what, we're trying to tank to get a better pick, John, or if it's really just he lost all control in that you situation. You have the lead. I yeah, mean, you have they, the lead they were in up the game. One. They were up one. They, like, they, they, that's just what I'm saying. If the Thunder have the ball, even with a double dribble, the Blazers are in the best spot. They're, they can have a chance to win. So I don't know. Chauncey lost his, lost his marbles on that one. And that is disappointing because as a former player, he should know better not to freak out after this one call that is, you know, it didn't even change the game. The Blazers still could have won that ball game. But Wood reported after the game that the Blazers were planning to protest yeah, the loss that's, that's not, with the league office. Yeah, they can do that, and they've done that. And it's highly unlikely that the league's going to go, okay, our officials made a mistake. Let's go back and replay the last two minutes or six minutes or whatever time was left at the point where that error happened. Sometimes officials make bad calls. Sometimes officials don't hear you when you're trying to call a timeout. It's like I, you know, years ago I was coaching third grade girls volleyball team, right? CYO volleyball third grade. <laughs> I told them bad things happen. Don't go to pieces when bad things happen. You know, you're going to get a bad call. The other team's going to make a good play. Chauncey Billups tried to call timeout. His player didn't make the right play. He, the official is trying to call the play in front of him, doesn't hear Chauncey or ignores Chauncey as he's trying to run onto the court and call timeout and save his player, bail his player out. And in the end, Chauncey gets double technical foul ejected and the Blazers lose the game because the coach is running around the court acting like an idiot. And so in that moment, yes, you can protest, but I think the bigger protest is Blazer fans should protest this roster and protest the front office and protest the coaching and protest the ownership. Can we get those things? Can Adam Silver look at those things while he's looking at whether or not, you know, the officials mishandled the last uh, couple minutes of the game. Now, there has been one protest that actually got upheld. Like, they, they replayed the last 50 seconds of the game, I believe, and it was back when Shaq was on the Lakers. Yeah. They counted Shaq for six fouls. 2007 or yeah. something? Yeah, he yeah. only had five. Uh, Shaq didn't even play the last 50 seconds of the game that they replayed. But it has happened before, John, so maybe the Blazers get a second chance with 15 seconds against the Thunder. Oh, once every 16, 17 years. I tell you what, that one, I hope the Blazers lose that game because I want a better draft pick. So, you know what, just keep just keep the outcome how it happened. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the win means a lot to the Thunder, right? Because now they're tied for number one in the Western Conference. Yeah, they moved, uh, yeah, they moved even with Minnesota. So it so. doesn't really matter that much for the the Blazers, but it matters a lot for the Thunder. Well, we'll see. In the end, I think the protest, the league's going to, they're going to nod. They're, even if they say they're going to make a mistake, they're going to go, hey, we got it wrong, but such is life. Leave it here. We're going to talk more about news agencies and what you can trust. The big news of the day, uh, the Chargers getting Jim Harbaugh. What will Michigan do? We'll talk about that as well. Leave it here. Well, I wrote it today at johnconzano.com. George Klyovkov should be fired. He should. It's not personal. I know it sounds, anytime you say something like that, you think, gosh, that's a mean thing to say. You're talking about somebody's job. But I'm not talking about taking his money away. He's got a contract that'll pay him $3.5 million a year. Pac-12 owes him around $8 million bucks, a little over $8 million. And when I say Pac-12, I mean all 12 schools combined owe him that money they've agreed to share that liability so it'll cost every one of the pac-12 members about seven hundred thousand dollars each to get rid of kleovkov but he needs to get out of the way today he was flying east he's going to washington dc communicated with him a little bit this morning he's going to meet with charlie baker 
the president of the NCAA. Like, in what capacity? Representing who? Exactly. He'll be there with Brett Yormark of the Big 12 and um, uh, obviously the commissioners of the Big 10 and the ACC and the other commissioner. They're all meeting in Washington, D.C. to talk about what to do about the NCAA. Why is George Klyovkov going? He's not Oregon State and Washington State's representative. They say he's not part of the plan moving forward. He's in the way. Like, there's a lot of decisions that Oregon State and Washington State need to make. That guy's in the way, and he's representing him. Now, Anna, I reached out to him, and I said to him, hey, I'm writing to call him, saying, you need to go. And to his credit, after some back and forth, he said, I appreciate you giving me the heads up. Uh, You know, credit to him for responding at all, because I guess at this point he doesn't need to. Um, but does he, he no? He, but does he not need to? Uh, you know, no, not really. Why do you think he's responding? Um, probably just because you've had enough conversations with him over time. I mean, I think you were more than fair to him um, with all of the coverage over the last couple of years. So, I mean, I think I think he respects your work, and he's he is one of those people that understands how the game is played. That it he has a degree in journalism doesn't really behoove him to just ignore you. I well, guess. I think uh, in this case, he's in the way. And if I'm Oregon State, Washington State, I just don't get it. Like, it may be that they're negotiating his exit. It may be that that's going on now. But I did not get the impression from talking to him at the college football playoff that. He was much interested in sticking around, and I did not get the impression as I talked to Oregon State, Washington State, and the other 10 schools that they're much interested in having him around. Do you think that the delay um, has anything to do with them trying to line up whoever it is they want to replace him? So they're having conversations with the next potential commissioner? Yeah, but it's a different job now, Mm -hmm. you know? Like in June, it stops being... Stanford, Cal, Arizona, Arizona State, whatever. Yeah. So the job between now and the end of the, you know, end of the contract, so to speak, June 30th, the job is a different job than August 1 and beyond. Mm-hmm. So what I think they should do is fire the guy, move him out of the way, let somebody internally at the Pac-12 offices, probably Teresa Gold, who's a deputy uh, commissioner, let her handle kind of the hey, we need you to get through basketball. We need you to get us to the end of June. That's going to be your role. Mm -hmm. And then spend the next five months or so identifying the visionary individual who will take over the conference and not be the same old sad sack commissioner, Larry Scott, George Klyovkov, that this conference has had in the last 12 years. I mean, I would hope that they already have someone or a few people in mind. That I they've identified. don't know. I don't know if they do. I think you're giving them a lot of credit, and I don't mean I'm not knocking Oregon State and Washington State. I just think their their eye right now, as of August of last year, they were very focused on survival. Like, you know, we're, you know, what do you think about? Like, Anna, here we go. It's a great example. The weather turns bad. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? What are you thinking about? Immediately. The fundamentals. Like what? Food, shelter, warmth, water, um, safety. All right. So you're not thinking about <laughs> where are we going on vacation? Nope. In the summer. And so this commissioner hire is a very long view hire. Mm-hmm. And so I think Oregon State, Washington State have been largely focused on survival, survival, survival. They get the settlement in 
late December. January marks a new era, a new year for them. Here comes George Klyovkov at the college football playoff national championship game, shows up wearing University of Washington team-issued Adidas sneakers. You can't tell me that Oregon State and Washington State enjoyed seeing that, given that Washington was one of the schools that turned its back on George Klyovkov. Yeah, and... Terrible decision by him. I thought, and for some reason, I had missed this whole time that, you know, it was Washington State and Oregon State. They were the only two to actually sign that grant of rights. Yeah, they were... They were I forgot. Still, How okay? did you forget that? I, I forgot. I forgot. And when you when you wrote about it today, I was like, oh, yeah. He, they were the only ones that were, like, with him yes. on this. Yes, and he, he shanked him. And they were him. the only ones that signed on the dotted line. He shanked him in the yard. You know? Yeah. It, it's ultimate betrayal. You know? We've had a teenage daughter. We've seen this kind of behavior from, you know, friends or whatever. And it's catty, man. It was That was a bad look. And... You know, we can, like, I've come on the show and I've said, hey, Oregon did what was in its best interest. Washington did what's in its best interest, okay? But George Klyovkov should have had a different view of what happened. He should have said, those two schools were with me. Everybody else bailed on me. To hell with everybody else. And instead, he sided with Washington and Oregon and everybody else. You know, I I just, I got to think that Oregon State, Washington State, he didn't think very highly of those two schools. Mm-hmm. He's not any different than the departing schools. So why does he still have a job? They have the only board seats. Kick him to the curb. It's time. And there's a message that gets sent when you make that move, as Washington State and Oregon State could do. There's a message you send to the world where you go, A, we're too good for this. We're above this. Because right now, any day that you, I think you keep Klyovkov around, it kind of looks, it's mm-hmm. a bad look. Yeah. It's a, there's, a, there's a gloom that is hanging over the conference that is associated with him. Now, to be fair to him, he wasn't the only reason the conference blew, blew up. Sure. I give him 33% accountability. Okay? <laughs> That's pretty specific. Yeah, I, I've thought about this a lot. He has 33% accountability. <laughs> okay. And, and I put it on him in part because it was his job to manage those presidents and chancellors. But I put 50% of it on the presidents and chancellors. 50 on them. 50% okay. on them. That leaves, oh, my math is so, so bad. That leaves 17%. 17%. Larry Scott gets the other 17%. Oh, Larry he, Scott. He put them on the road. Doesn't it and, feel like the whole Pac-12 has just mailed it in, though? Like the whole conference has mailed it ever since they, all those teams left? The the rest of the conference doesn't even have a vote. Well, I know, like they don't have like, a seat at the table. Yeah, they mailed it in. Yeah, they've they all no mailed it. Like it just, I just feel like Oregon State, Washington State is such a tough spot to try to rebuild anything because nobody cares about them. Yeah, and I think Oregon, but Oregon State, Washington State have to be thinking about life beyond the departing ten. They, you know, they made the plan for football with the Mountain West. They made the plan for basketball with the WCC. But they need to get Klyovkov the hell out of the way so they can start going. Hey, we've got a plan. We're plotting, and at least people will take them seriously. I think the longer he stays there, the bigger problem it is. Anna's 5 at 5 coming up next. What's the number one story? Find out. Happy hour, 5 o'clock hour. Appreciate everybody who's here for it. Anna's got her 5 at 5 ready. We got Punch It Audio coming up later this hour. We'll take some phone calls. Got some big news. 
got to talk about the news that CNN broke. Did CNN break the uh, Harbaugh to the Chargers story, Stephen, or no? Um, Not the Harbaugh. It's not the Harbaugh one, but maybe the Doc Rivers one. They got the Doc Rivers got one. The, I'll give them the Doc Rivers. No Harbaugh, though. They're in a slump then. Yeah. What are they doing? They could have capitalized on all that momentum yeah. to be a real sports I know. reporting agency. Come on, CNN. Anna, did you hear about how that went down? No, what? Okay, so CNN doesn't do doesn't do like sports. Yeah. And yet last night on the TNT broadcast, they they cited CNN Sports as the source for a breaking news story that Doc Rivers was now the new coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. Huh. Nobody else reporting it. In fact, Chris Haynes and others saying this is not true. It's not done. Yeah. But uh, CNN Sports posted a story. Twelve forty-three a.m. on their website with staff as the by as the uh, byline. Really, and the prevailing there's a couple theories. It ended up being right. Yeah, it ended up being right, but it might not have been right at the time that they published it. <laughs> it's one of those. Yeah, where everybody knew that Doc Rivers was probably the guy, and the one of the prevailing theories is that somebody at CNN who was writing scripts mm-hmm. wrote the script ahead of time. Oh. And they did not intend to publish, but then they did publish hmm. and it kind of got out. Um, and, you know, because, you know, you guys you guys do that in TV news. Yeah. You, you wrote stories to kind of you knew something was going to happen. Yeah. You would write it and then you'd wait to confirm it and then you'd hit publish. Yeah. Or have it on the news. That would be uh, a, an interesting combination of circumstances if that's how it got out. There. And secondarily, though, I mean, they published the story. Yeah. They don't have a reporter's name attached to it. Right. The other theory is like maybe they did know something. CNN, um, maybe they had an in with Doc <laughs> Rivers or the Milwaukee Bucks, but CNN this morning uh, issuing a statement saying they stand by their reporting. <laughs> Good for them. Uh, question, who's the reporter? <laughs> Staff? Whoever it was didn't want to take credit for the report. I think they were trying to jump the gun. They knew it was going to happen, and I think they were waiting for someone else to confirm it, and somehow it either got published or somebody saw the script and said, according to CNN. Mm. But CNN, I, I guess, leaked it to their sister station, TNT. Yeah. And said, you know, so TNT's like, according to CNN, and all the people on TNT are like, CNN? <laughs> like, what are they doing in our space? <laughs> CNN SI is suddenly back? What? According to Martha Stewart, <laughs> there's been a trade in the NBA. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like I don't know. Martha out of Stewart, left field. She knows a lot of well, people. Maybe CNN should stick to sports. That should be their thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> you should tweet that. Hey CNN, stick to sports. <laughs> Does anyone remember they tried sports for a while? Yeah, it didn't work. Yeah, Sports yeah. Illustrated. They had like a partnership. Yeah. Oh, don't start me on Sports Illustrated. It's so sad. <laughs> That's so sad. What happened to SI? All right, we got the five at five. Anna's ready. She's locked in. I'm locked in. Let's do it. The Five at Five. Number one. That was a pregnant pause. Uh, Gotta make them wait. You mentioned it, but we've got to make this number one, right? Jim Harbaugh leaving the national champion Michigan Wolverines to accept the head coaching job with the NFL's Los Angeles Chargers, as reported by... ESPN's Adam Schefter today. I thought you were going to say CNN. <laughs> you know, I didn't really know much about his history, but so head coaching career began at 2006 at the University of San Diego. 
had success at Stanford, Michigan, and in the NFL with the 49ers. And by the way, he played quarterback for the Chargers for two seasons, 1999 to 2000. Well... He's got that history. What else you got? You always dive deeper. Don't you have a little more on that? Well, secondarily, our friend Andrew Nemec uh, at SB Live Sports is reporting that his departure to Los Angeles may wind up being really good for the Oregon Ducks. There's a five-star wide receiver out of Burley, Idaho, Gatlin Bear. He's the last remaining unsigned five-star recruit in this class, and for some time, it's been down to Michigan or Oregon. So maybe he winds up at Oregon because of Harbaugh's departure. Dan Lanning laughs last. Always. <laughs> Good job by Nemec getting that angle. Here's Harbaugh after uh, Michigan wins the national championship. How does being a champion and restoring your alma mater to a championship status impact decisions you will make because you're going to have opportunities and everybody says that you know everybody says that i don't know you know who knows that Um, but how does it impact your thinking about how you will evaluate it i don't know i mean we could peel back the onion and uh you know different different layers of emotion and what are you going to think and how are you think all i know is this i'm living right now this is uh this is incredible I liked Harbaugh in the post game after the national championship game. Yeah, I thought he was really funny. I think he's a really quirky, different guy, and uh, you know he's obviously a winner. I think the Chargers uh, made a good hire here. They obviously gave him control, which is what he wanted. But I'm happiest of all for for two entities. One, I'm really happy for Justin Herbert if he's if he counts as an entity. I think it's um, it's great to see him finally getting a coach that you know is a reliable known quantity. Secondarily, how about Fox Sports Eugene? Steve at Fox Sports Eugene, shout out to you. That guy, Steve, he loves him some Justin Herbert so much. He is airing play-by-play of the Chargers games has since Herbert was drafted. Little win for Fox Sports Eugene today as they're getting the Chargers game next season as well. Number two. USA Basketball released uh, a 41-player pool on Tuesday consisting of players who will be considered for the 2024 Summer Olympics roster. And Draymond Green, not on the list. USA Basketball Executive Director Grant Hill says it's because of his disciplinary issues this season. He says his contributions have been significant, yada, yada, but in lieu of sort of what's transpired this year, we made a decision not to have Green on this list in this particular point in time with the process. Um, it's really been interesting to watch Draymond. He, you know, he has talked about the impact he's had on his team. It's, it's urgent from a f- professional standpoint because I wasn't hurt. You know, at least my body wasn't hurt. Uh, my mind was hurt. My feelings was hurt. Uh, but. It wasn't like some injury caused me off the floor. So it's very urgent because I've cost my team enough. You know, I've cost this organization enough, you know. And so um, it's not a time for me to just come back and be like, all right, I'm going to take my time and get back when I can. No, like you caused this yourself. And so you don't get the grace. Now, for perspective, Green was part of Team USA's last two Olympic teams, which both won gold 
This was at 2016 and the 2020 Ooh. Olympic Games. If they don't win gold, Draymond <laughs> is the <laughs> reason. <laughs> Number three. Oh, boy. Okay, tell me if this is good for Portland or not. Uh, owners of the Utah Jazz said today that they have the immediate ability hmm. to bring an NHL team to Utah and requested the initiation of an expansion process. Good for Portland. Good for Portland. Yeah. Don't you see it? No, I don't, because I thought, oh, it's going to go to Utah, not us. What do you mean? I don't I don't know. What sport are we talking about? Hockey. NHL. Portland's not getting an NHL team. Oh. <laughs> okay. So here's what it does. <laughs> okay. No, Explain. I mean, I don't think you're alone. Like, yeah. you know, I, look, I've, I've talked over the years with Blazers executives, people like Chris McGowan, who was the team president. Paul Allen wanted hockey, he would have got hockey. Mm-hmm. Okay. He would if if Paul Allen really wanted a hockey team at Moda Center, it would have happened. He didn't want it, and Salt Lake City really wants another sport. Now the other sport that they wanted, they initially were talking about baseball, right? So I think their interest in hockey sort of signals maybe that they're not as interested in Major League Baseball to Salt Lake City. And you know, now looking over at the Portland Diamond Project, saying, "Hey, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Get that red tail property locked up." Yeah, I know everybody's talking about Lloyd Center. Lloyd Center makes no sense. The leases, the headaches, dealing with city politics. Soon as Mayor Ted Wheeler figures out that the Red Tail property is the right place to make a pitch for Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball might just pay attention to us in our region. You know, again, what kind of city do we want to be? Salt Lake City is going, we want another sport, and we'll take anything we can get. They're going after hockey, and hockey makes sense there. Have you been to Salt Lake in the winter? That's a hockey town. It's cold. It makes sense. It would work there. I think the fans would get behind it. I don't see Major League Baseball in Salt Lake City. I've spent time there. I just don't. It doesn't make any sense to me. Huh. doesn't fit. I think we, meaning the Pacific Northwest, are much more suited for a Major League Baseball team. Number four. I'm amused by this. Uh, report about Victor Wimbanyama. Oh, I gotta hear this. How the Spurs staff is advised to never phone him after 9.30 p.m. because he reads for an hour before bed and goes to sleep by 10.30. Nobody call him. He's reading? What is he reading? I gotta know. Does he not have silence on his phone? (laughs) Well, people who know him say it's not like he's just stuck on page one. He's not doing it for the pictures. He's reading. Before games, he's carrying a book. You might catch him going to the bus with a book in his hand. Good for him. Last time uh, I had a conversation with an NBA player about a book they were reading was Ruben Boomche Boomche. And in the book was The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> he was reading, he, he was da, reading Vinci da Vinci Code. <laughs> and the beauty of that was he, his locker was right next to Rasheed Wallace's locker. And so our poor Ruben... Had, you know, he caught all the flack and all the media that were kind of around Rashid at any point and dealing with whatever Rashid was talking about. You know, like Ruben put up with some stuff. And I, one time everybody was around Rashid and I looked over at Ruben Boomchi Boomchi and I was like, sorry. And he goes, I'm used to it. And it, because everybody just kind of steps in your space, those lockers, there's not that big a space. But I heard Ruben Boomchi Boomchi sitting there reading the Da Vinci Code. I had a long talk with him about that, the book, whatever. And it turns out, Ruben 
he had he was a double major at Georgetown. Well, like, there you go. You know, he had some he had more to offer. I ran into him in the airport in either Orlando or Tampa. I can't remember. It was in Florida. And I, I'm in line, you know, getting on a plane, coming back to Portland. And I was like, Ruben? And he was like, yeah. And he was scouting for an NBA team. So it was good to see him. He was reading a book on the plane, too. So Victor Wembanyama, don't call him after what time? 9.30, because he's in his reading mode. He has really good sleep hygiene. That's Is nice that what we hear. call it? Yes. Sleep hygiene? Uh-huh. Yeah. Steven, how's your sleep hygiene? Uh, not great. I will say that. It's uh, <laughs> get work on it. Something to work on there. Fill in the blank. Don't call Steven after? Uh, probably like 1, 1.30 a.m. <gasps> you go yeah. to bed that late? Yes. Wow. He's a night owl, that guy. But that's because you shut off all devices and screen time at like 11. No, right? no, that's because I, I shut down the kids and they're in bed, so I need Steven alone time. <laughs> yeah, how much uh, up and down do the kids do when you say it's time to go to bed? And how, how much do they listen to you? Uh, it's about, you know, if we're giving out percentages, they listen to my wife about 80% me, 20. They think I'm joking. <laughs> they think I'm joking all the time. Yeah. And so they think I'm like wanting to play. I was like, no, I'm just trying to get you to bed. And they think I want to like throw them around on the bed or something. Yeah. You're like one of these guys that carries a firearm and carries it everywhere. And we all know that that person isn't going to use the firearm. You need to fire a shot into the ceiling sometime. 100, yeah, 100%. <laughs> you know? I would never do it. I, yeah. Just one round, you know, like so the kids know you're serious. I'm being figurative here. Make sure you're upstairs, okay? Yeah. Just you I, need to fire one round. I've gotten upset and mad at them, and they laugh at me. They just think I'm being funny. <laughs> You have no authority. I don't. You, got to, you need to command some respect. They know. You know? They know. They just... Single the weak one out, you know, among your children. <laughs> <laughs> Go after them. All right. <laughs> Follow for more parenting tips. <laughs> Meanwhile, gotta, up at Gonzano House. You got to pick one off. Oh, okay. Number five. <laughs> All right. Let's finish it up with pickleball because you know how much I love pickleball. Uh, it continues to rise as one of the fastest-growing sports in the United States among a younger demographic. High schoolers, several high schools in Maryland have added pickleball as an option for athletes, allowing them to join the team and compete nice. against other schools. They're working toward the multi-athlete kids that are playing baseball, lacrosse, and tennis to give them something to do in the winter. Please. According to a study released by the Association of Pickleball Professionals... That's a real group. 48 million Americans played pickleball between March of 22 and March of 23. That is that is almost 19% of the adult population, yeah. John. That's nice. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> I think this. I nice. think this is good. Nice. More options for kids to do things that are outside of their, their primary sport are good. Giving them games that they can play for the rest of their lives is a good thing. I'm not going to knock this. A lot of people are going to knock it. I'm not going to be one of them. Pickleball, if if you want to sign up and play, great. But can you imagine, like, I, I really wish pickleball could have been a thing like when Michael Jordan was in his prime. <laughs> I'd like to see that guy play pickleball. Well, that's yeah. my fear is that, like, the really good athletes are like, I'm going to go play pickleball instead of football now or basketball. <laughs> And then you're, what, what is this going <laughs> to interfere with your professional career? Yeah. You know? like, what are we doing here? <laughs> your trajectory suddenly crippled because LeBron's playing? Exactly. I, if you're going to play pickleball, it's because you can't play the real sports. Uh, there you go. There you have it. That's the five at five.
Um, I'm, I, I, look, I just think, I remember, okay, I go to the Olympics, I go to the Summer Olympics one year, and I wander into the gym where they're doing handball. Yeah. Have you ever seen handball, team handball? Not really. That game, I kind of wondered why, like, my middle school and high school didn't play that at PE. What, what is it? It's, it's... It's not volleyball. No, you're literally, it's a cross between, like, lacrosse. Okay. But you're playing with a ball, you can dribble it, you can pass it, um, there's a limited number of steps you can take, it's very pass-oriented. Okay. There's an arc around the goal. Okay. Where you can't shoot from within the arc, so you have to jump from without side the arc and fake the goalie out and mm-hmm. bounce past it into the net behind them and okay. it's really an athletic interesting yeah. sport and mm-hmm. the eastern european countries dominate it yeah they play it i'm mm-hmm. sure in east germany or wherever kids are playing this mm-hmm. like growing up okay and so but it, it reminded me a lot of like games that we would play as kids that we would make up yeah because i was like oh you can only dribble it once you know you have to take off from here you can't be but i kept thinking like you know if you could get like scotty pippen <laughs> And like, who would beat America in handball mm-hmm. if we had like Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon, John Stockton? We would have dominated. We would have won gold. Like, you know, I just take fifteen minutes to explain the game to them. Yeah, you're telling me Lamar Jackson's not going to be awesome at pickleball? Oh, oh, yeah. So I, it gets me thinking in those, in that context. And I, I guess for PE coaches out there. I, I imagine that equipment becomes an issue. We know this from the BFT Foundation and some of the grant requests that come in. Like, you know, we had a, a school in Salem, Oregon, who I had mentioned on air that, you know, my dad collects old baseball gloves and he goes out to garage sales and he gets baseball gloves and he goes to Goodwill and he buys baseball gloves and then he takes them and he restrings them and he fixes them up and then he donates them sometimes to kids and he wants gloves in the hands of kids. And so... There was a school in Salem who heard about it, and I, you know, my dad had dropped like a box of gloves here. <laughs> I had 150 baseball gloves in my garage, yep. and they're all good, but they're all kid sized or middle school sized. And so I talked about it on air, and the school in Salem said, "We'll take the gloves." It was a PE teacher, and he said, "It's one of the hardest things because we can't play softball or we can't play baseball because mm-hmm. we can't just go, hey, everybody, bring their glove today." Yeah. And so the ability to have, like, 100 baseball gloves and have the kids use them, it it opens up a whole, you know, we can play baseball or softball for a week. Mm-hmm. I just have, I just think that, like, you already had tennis courts. It wasn't like PE teachers were doing tennis as a lesson. Mm-hmm. It would be a disaster with the rackets <laughs> and the balls flying everywhere. But you could do pickleball. You could, yes. And given that it was invented in the Pacific Northwest, Bainbridge Island in Washington. That's right. The origin of the game. We should dominate. We should have the best pickleball players in the world here. That's where it's headed. I mean, there's just watch. I mean, there's, you know, you have all these like professional athletes investing in the professional pickleball leagues, right? It's going to be college scholarships offered for pickleball. Punch It Audio is coming up. We have great sound. I want you here for it. I talked with seven different college athletic directors major college athletic directors one in the sec uh one in the big 10 couple in the pac-12 mountain west conference uh other places as well um i am uh, working on a piece on how different the job is for athletic directors in today's world and the feedback i'm getting is fantastic i mean 
behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, if you want to read it, you can uh, find it. You'll get it delivered in your email inbox. Uh, grab a subscription at johnconzano.com if you're interested in reading that and uh, seeing what I learn. Uh, we have great sound, part of Punch It Audio. We're going to rip through the world of sports. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. We'll start with the news of the day. Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan for the Los Angeles Chargers. Here's Adam Schefter with the report. Punch it. Michigan had an offer on the table to make him the highest paid coach in college football. And Michigan, though, could not offer him the chance to win a Super Bowl. Mm. And really, that's ultimately it. He would have loved to have stayed at Michigan. Michigan would have loved to have had him. But the fact of the matter is, the Chargers give him the ability to compete for a Super Bowl. And I think that Jim Harbaugh clearly was interested in LA. He was interested in Atlanta. But the first visit was to Los Angeles, to the Chargers. And because of that, that gave them, I believe, an advantage. Gave them an advantage. They got the coach. But let's be real. This is a big win for Justin Herbert. Three full-time head coaches in college, three more in the NFL. Jim Harbaugh feels like the right guy. And look, I'll go back to the, the wake of the national championship game. You know, obviously there was some relief from the Michigan side as they had um, you know worked really hard to get to that point had sniffed around some success not did not break through but all of a sudden you know it was like they got it they broke through in the post-game news conference Jim Harbaugh spent a lot of time talking about the NCAA investigation sign stealing all of that listen to this exchange he had with reporters after the title game I was there in Houston Here's Harbaugh. Punch it. All right. Can I? Can I? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, it couldn't have gone better. It went exactly how we wanted it to go uh, to win every game. Uh, the off, off the field issues were innocent. And, and we, stood, we stood strong and tall because we knew we were innocent. And I just like to point that out. And these guys, these guys are innocent. And. Yeah, overcome that. Um, it wasn't that hard because we we knew we were innocent. So um, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's really what I want to say. It went exactly how we wanted it to go. It went exactly how we wanted it to go. Season went exactly how he wanted him to go. I wanted it to go. Harbaugh to me sounded like a guy who was done with college football at the time. Now he really is gone. Now is it possible he's going to the NFL because he knows, hey, there could be sanctions? All you know, all that speculation will will obviously be fueled. But he's got some unfinished business in the NFL, and he's got a quarterback in Justin Herbert, who will be a lot of fun to see. Chauncey Billups was ejected last night at the end of the Blazers game. He Blazers were leading against Oklahoma City late in the game. Here's the Oklahoma City Thunder TV call of the sequence that is now under protest. Punch it. Thunder stunt. They want a foul. Brogdon has some timeouts. They got away with a double dribble or no? Phillips trying to call timeout. He's wide 
Blazers didn't get the timeout. Chauncey Billups lost his poise. Blazers lose the game. Here's Billups. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a tough situation. You know, we got timeouts. Referees usually are prepared for that, you know, that instance, that situation. I'm at half court trying to call a timeout, you know. It's just, it's just a frustrating play. My guys play too hard for that. You know, it's a frustrating play. Frustrating play. Also, you know, mildly unprofessional by Chauncey Billups. And I say mildly because he's played in the league a long time, and he understands what the officials are looking for. And I'm sure that the officials are going, hey, man, you know, we didn't hear it, whatnot. Blazers protesting the game. I doubt that the NBA is going to see it their way. Even if they do see it the Blazers' way, I doubt that they're going to order the last couple of minutes to be replayed. And I'm not sure what it means. I just wish Chauncey Billups would have showed some more poise there. Damian Lillard and the Bucks have a new coach. It's Doc Rivers. Ryan Rosilio talking about Dame on the defensive end of the court. This is going to sound familiar. Punch it. If they were all in agreement, like, look, this just isn't going to work, it can, it can seem entirely unfair that somebody at 30-13 loses their job. But I don't know that I think it's the wrong thing. So we've covered some of the defensive stuff here, but just to add to it, when you switch out Drew Holiday for Dame on defense, you're not going to be as good defensively. I know most of you know that already, right? But the problem with Dame is, you know, and it was even funny too when he got he got traded there. It was, there was, I think there was a couple stories and maybe been a quote from him. It was like, it's not that I'm bad on defense. It's just that it's like, no, no, you're, you're like disinterested. You can't be bothered with it sometime, which is why it's so incredibly frustrating. So I'd love to know the truth of his frustration and, and what that is. Look, I just think Damian Lillard is not interested in playing defense as much as he is in playing offense. And I don't think that's unique to Damian Lillard. I think there are quite a few basketball players, college and professional, and probably high school, and probably recreational, who enjoy going to the offensive end of the court more than the defensive end. And I think it's um, symptomatic of the game today and where we give credit and how contracts are awarded. And yes, of course, great defenders in the NBA are valued, but they're not valued on the same level as guys that can come out and shoot 37-foot three-pointers and score you know, 35 a game and help their team on the offensive end. It's just, you know, it's apples and oranges. And I and I think it's incredibly difficult to ask Damian Lillard at this point of his career to be a diff, different player. But I certainly think it's reasonable for Doc Rivers or whoever comes in with the Bucks, along with that staff, to ask him to be better on the defensive end of the floor and be a better team defender. Now, Steven... Help me out with that. Like, we walk into a gym. You're not going to go down to the defensive end and start working on your slides. You're going to go to the offensive end. You're going to start shooting threes like everybody else. 
Hundred percent, yes, and uh, I, I do think you're right. I think it's unfair to ask Dame at age 33 to be like, "Hey, we need you to be an elite defender now," because he's he's never had to do it. He didn't have to do it in college. Didn't have to do it in high school. Didn't have to do it in the pros because he's been so good offensively. And, and to his credit, he's made you know half a billion dollars doing what he does. So I wouldn't expect him to want to change it. Um, so you got to figure out a way to work around that. Now, we talked about being on elite defense, how you have to be a top 10 defense to win the finals. Bucks are 21, 22, depending on where you look. But Dame's been on one elite defense in his entire career in Portland, a top 10 defense. So it's going to be tough to build around him anyways, just, just the way he plays basketball. But there's reports out there, John, that some of the players, including Dame, including Giannis, were not happy with Adrian Griffin and the philosophies that he had on the offensive side as well and the defensive side. Do you buy into that? Because you, you look at Dame's numbers this year. His shots are down. You know He's shooting like three shots less than he did a season ago. Do you think there is some uh, complaining on from the player's side, just offensively even, even though they're the top, top I think they're second in offensive rating, there's some uh, arguments that said they don't like the offense that they're running either, and they could be complaining about that as well. I think if we keep stepping back. Let's take another step back. Um, player contracts are guaranteed. Coaching contracts are shorter for less money. You're always going to the owners are always going to listen to the players and value the players' input, particularly when it comes to Adrian Griffin, first-time coach, first-time head coach, um, and a guy that you know didn't seem to connect with the locker room. And so I think the voices in those locker rooms get awfully big in the NBA. And it sh- maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe the game would be better. Maybe the teams would be better, and maybe the players would be better if the players didn't have so much power. But they do. And so, yeah, you get a little bit of squawking. And, you know, the, I read a story where the Bucks players were saying that they saw it coming because they could tell that management and the uh, the uh, management team was showing up to practices to kind of watch. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, I, I think those management people are talking to their agents. You but know, it, but it's like if no I, doubt. If I'm Dame, what am I expecting when I go to the Bucks and I play with Giannis? I'm not going to get as many shots as I got in Portland. I it, Like, yeah. that's just how it should be. And if it is true that Dame's complaining about the offensive side, that that's on Dame, man. That that's a that's a that's a knock on Damian Lillard right there. Well, I think look, let's be real about how it was set up for him in Portland too. CJ McCollum, Damian Lillard had it better than anybody when Neil Olshay was around. Now, Olshay, I believe had another motive. I think he wanted to fashion himself as the draft expert who had plucked Damian Lillard and we all know the Blazers had identified Lillard as a player that they loved in the draft prior to Neil Olshay getting hired. Chad Buchanan did the scouting along with Dan Dickow. Those guys will tell you. They won't lie to you. They had already identified Damian Lillard as a guy that they were probably going to pick and Paul Allen was going to fall in love with. And, you know, Olshay comes in, he drafts Lillard, then puts McCollum beside him. Then what does he do? He goes out, he gets Al Farouk Aminu, he goes out, he gets Alan Crabb, he gets drafts Myers Leonard in that same draft where he got Lillard, and he set all of those guys up for success by clearing anybody out of the way who was going to take shots for them. Like, it, the ball was going to be in their hands, they were going to get all the shots, and it's why I think, you know, Blazer fans always overvalued their players. But I actually think the Blazers organization overvalued their players because they were like, gosh, look at the numbers these guys are putting up. But you you put C.J. McCollum on another team where he has to share the ball more. You put Damian Lillard on a team where he has to share the ball. They're not going to have the same numbers. And, and you, It's just math. Yeah, and I was going to say, and if you look at and you watch the Bucks games this year, Dame's shooting a lot less of those 30, 32-foot three-point shots 
that he was able to do in Portland because Portland gave him reins to do everything. Milwaukee says, no, we got Giannis on the Kumpo. We can't have you taking those shots. And they and they as it should be, right? Right. right like, correct. Damian Lillard's not an MVP. And Giannis is. You know, he is he is Robin now. He was Batman in Portland. You know, it's like Robin complaining at the end of the Batman episode that he didn't get enough airtime. You know, like, be happy where you are. You have an opportunity to win a championship. And, you know, it the, the ball doesn't lie. Let's just say yeah, that. He, he's on a team that's 30 and 13, and he's still not happy. Like, what, I don't, if, if that's the case, yeah. I don't know what's going to make that guy happy. If that's true. If it's, if true, it's true. If it's you know, true. That's true. But I, I got to be honest. Like, you know, I had, I had my issues with Lillard. Where you know, one time on radio, I was talking about his defense, and he and he got all upset. You know, people are still talking about the defense. Do something about it. You know, quit complaining about the message, and do something to address the perception that you're not a good defender. Everything that Ryan Rosilio said has been said about Lillard before. And what does he do? He gets mad. He tweets at people. He get you know, it's just uh, it's silly. Kalen DeBoer gone to Alabama. The new Alabama coach talking about the old Alabama coach. Here's DeBoer talking about Nick Saban. Punch it. Yeah, I mean, I'd be pretty foolish if I didn't yeah. uh, lean on him, and, uh, have a have a door that was open for him to come and and uh, see it, and and uh, you know, for me to reach out for advice. Um, have done that uh, quite frequently, especially uh, the first week, and uh, you know, he, he uh, will be someone I know. I appreciate him having. Uh, his line open for me at any time. You know, he he built this program to the point you invest so much in it. You know, I, I know that he wants nothing more for this pro other than for this program to continue to build on what he's done, all the work he's put in. Um, he just doesn't want it to go float off into, you know, into space. Uh, he wants it to be great. Look, this is good for Kalen DeBoer. He's right to embrace the legend of Nick Saban. Ultimately, Kalen DeBoer's got to win games, and not just nine or ten. He's got to win games and compete for playoff spots, make the playoff, be around the playoff. It's a tough act to follow. I, I, I called him Frank Sinatra Jr. because I, I, I just think that that's an incredibly difficult thing to follow in the in the path of a coach like Nick Saban, and it's even harder because the landscape has leveled some, and Saban knew. Saban's looking around going, all the advantages that gave me the best teams and the best players, I'm not going to have them anymore. I'm got, you know, this is a good time for me to exit. I made the playoff. Here comes Kalen DeBoer. Uh, you know, I wish him the best, but I'm awfully interested to see how that pans out. Is it a dangerous game, though, to keep Saban close to the program that's yours? Like you, you, like you said, you're following the legend. You, don't, you can't be him. Is it a little dangerous to keep him that close? I think you got to look like you're giving a nod to it. You know, you can't, you know, I'm not ignoring it. Uh, I, you know, if you ignore it and you run from it, I think you alienate some key people who are probably Nick Saban allies. Saban can help you more than he can hurt you. But you also want to make it your own program. You have to. You can't try to be Nick Saban, but you have to know, like, Nick Saban is a hell of a lobbyist in your NIL world. But here's the other thing I kind of wonder about. Down deep, this is going to be a real test of, Saban's ego. Down deep, will Nick Saban be able to kind of stand to the side and watch Kalen DeBoer, or is he going to be like Barry Alvarez at Wisconsin, like just hovering over the whole thing forever in perpetuity? You know, almost like, you know, I hope that this uh, this guy knows what he's doing, kind of 
mentality. It's a really tricky thing for Saban as well. Well, you know, the first bad quarter that Alabama has, fans are going to be yeah. calling for Saban back. Well, it's like Chip Kelly. Remember when Chip Kelly took over the Ducks? You know, here we are, 2009, Boise, you know, September of 2009, and here's Chip Kelly. He's taken over from Mike Bellotti, right? What happened? The Ducks couldn't move the ball, couldn't get a first down on offense in the first half of that game against Boise State. I looked down from the press box in Boise at halftime. Mike Bellotti's on the sideline trying to help Chip. You know, it wasn't a good start. Chip figured it out. You know, by the time he beat Purdue in week two and everything, and the, the ship kind of got pointed in the right direction, and suddenly, you know, Bilotti could go. But, you know, Mike Bilotti was running down the sideline trying to help bail Chip Kelly out in that first game. I'll never forget it. Leave it here. Well, I want you out there, if you're listening, yes, you, I'm talking to you now. If you're listening, uh, whether you're in the gym, you're running on the treadmill, or you're uh, driving home, from work or you are at your cubicle or you are in your garage or your kitchen or your backyard or wherever you may be listening to this. I want you to know that I appreciate that you are are uh, listening to this radio show. You you it's like the airlines say that you know we know you have choices. I'm I mean that. Like I get it. Like there's a lot of competition for your attention. And I do not take it lightly that you are here listening to this show. And I always say, you know, like we're not home of the ducks or the beavers or home of the blazers or you know we're just home of the truth i mean that and you know once upon a time i did a column i met a guy who was a rep for adidas and he was the loneliest guy in the portland metropolitan area as i talked to him he kept telling me that like you know come graduation time I think he lived in the Lake Oswego area. He said he didn't get invited to graduation parties because he was the Adidas rep and all the Nike families that were living there in uh, Lake Oswego in the surrounding area who worked at Nike, who wore Nike, they just, I think, weren't keen to invite the Adidas guy to the graduation party. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. But I'll tell you on this show, whether you are an Adidas person or a Nike person, I love you all. You know, you're all welcome here. Under Armour as well. And one? You wear an and one? Come on over. Like, I, I just appreciate the range of this audience. I want to open the phone lines. Give me your reaction to Justin Herbert getting Jim Harbaugh as a head coach. Give me your reaction to Chauncey Billups getting tossed out of the Blazers game last night, costing the Blazers a victory. Give me your reaction to the NFL playoff games going on this weekend. Which one's the must-watch? And again, like, you know, for those of you out there who make this show part of your day, I appreciate you. And, uh, you know, I, I don't take it lightly that in 17 or 18 years of doing this show, I can't count, can't remember, that it has often not felt like work because it's fun and you're here for it, and I appreciate you. And um, uh, it means a lot to me when you come up to me in the gym or I see you at the grocery store and uh, you fist bump me, and you say you listen to the show. It means a lot. All right, I'm going to rapid-fire test you, Stephen. I'm going to put you on the spot. Callers have at it, 503-417-7575. Stephen, putting you on the spot. Okay? You ready? Yeah, let's do it. I'm just going to pepper you. <laughs> okay. Rapid-fire. You cannot pause. You cannot hesitate. You got to just kind of – you got to keep up here. Okay? We're sprinting. This is more like a steeplechase. Then it is um, like an 800-meter run. Gotcha. Okay. 
Um, so there's going to be some jumping. You might get your sneakers wet. But let's start with sneakers. Nike or Adidas for you? Oh, Nike guy all day. Um, I was when I went to Concordia. They were an Adidas school, and then the year after I finished playing, they became a Nike school, and I was really upset about it. Like I, re- I really wanted it to be a Nike school, but I'm all about Nike. My feet don't necessarily fit right in Adidas shoes. I've tried Adidas shoes. I've given them a fair shot, uh, but I'm a Nike guy through and through. More obnoxious fan base, or the most obnoxious fan base you've ever been around? Uh, Oregon Ducks. Oregon Ducks fan base. Wow. <laughs> mean. I, I mean, hey, look. I mean, there, <laughs> there's the joke of uh, what do Duck fans and Beer fans have in common. They both didn't go to Oregon. So I, I just, I, uh, I I feel like that's what it is. They kind of, a little bit of a bandwagon fan base. Uh, I mean, expect a little more than what they should have gotten. But you know what? I, they've gotten better, but for a stretch there, John, they were, uh, they were real bad. Airplane, uh, window seat, or aisle seat? I am an aisle seat guy all the way. Heights heights scare me a little bit, so I don't like to look out the window anyways. I've had a window seat. I, I can't look out the window. It kind of frightens me. And since I'm a big guy, I like to have my feet in the aisle. And I'll, I, you know, I, I'm pretty aware of my surroundings. Can't really sleep very well on a plane, so I'm aware if there's a cart or a person that's coming by, I can get my legs out of the way. But I need, I need to stretch out a little bit, so uh, I'm an aisle guy. Women have a longer life expectancy than men. Why? Why? What's your theory? Well, because men are dumb and women are smarter in general. In general, now there are men, but I think in general, uh, there are so the women are smarter. They're when they take risks, it's like less life threatening. Like I feel like men oh. just throw their lives out there for no reason for a lot you've of times. So you've been watching TikTok too. Yeah, much. yeah, exactly. So it, it, I think it's just uh, you know I think if we took the poll of women's are going to be way higher than men. I have not seen a woman wrestling a crocodile on TikTok. And I have th- seen men do it. Exactly. And like so, that's the thing. Yeah. You know what? I've been around my friends, all, all my guy friends. Like, you know, it's it's not a safe time all the time. But We're, you know the, the real reason that women live longer? It's the social part of it. They They're better at networking and friendships and the stuff like Paul Knowles, that guy who called in yesterday. He's 93. He's got places to be. Like, you know, he's got that social yeah. IQ. Women have that. Men don't. That that ends. The rest of us, we're kind of, we're like a bunch of hermits. Well, and um, usually if a guy's trying to be friends with a girl, they think that they're hitting on him all the time. You know, like, it, we can't figure it out. Well, there you go. Um, by the way, for, uh, you know, I, I kind of waver on whether it's Nike or Adidas. I went through a phase where I was more Adidas. Um, I think I'm gravitating back to Nike now. Mm. You know, I just, I kind of find myself liking their stuff better, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes out, how that works out. Uh, movies. You and I are going to a movie. Are we putting a seat between us? Yeah, I would prefer that. Now, we had a all staff meeting today, and I was going to sit behind you, and you told me to sit right next to you. And yeah, then I, I would see you. You wanted to be right next to me. I was going to sit to the seat next to you, but then Judah crowded and sat next to me there. It wasn't that I was uncomfortable, but yeah, I would have preferred to have a seat in between all of us. It was weird when you tried to hold my hand. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only weird part. Or when they said, are there any questions? I was going to throw your hand up. That, oh, and, you know, I, I would have I, I I hated you for that. <laughs> I, I would have quit on the spot. <laughs> I'm going to do that. All right. All right. Uh, good. I peppered you. Let's go to the phone lines now. 503-417-7575. What's on your mind? Mark's in Beaverton. What's on your mind, Mark? So, John, of the three that three options you gave, um, I got to go with um, Harbaugh going to the Chargers because I'm sorry, I feel sorry for Justin Herbert, just like I felt sorry for Mariota. It's kind of the same thing. It's like going through coach after coach and offensive coordinator after offensive coordinator. And I'm not blaming anybody or anything, but it just looks like this last year. Granted, he was injured, but Herbert just seemed off. He just didn't seem 
And so I just hope and pray that Harbaugh, being a quarterback himself, can take Herbert under his wing and make him the quarterback that we all know that he can be. And so that's, yeah, that's yeah. Well, I, I, I think I, I think it's a good point. And and look, Herbert was the first thing I thought about when Harbaugh did the Chargers because, you know, he's going to put together an offense that certainly highlights Justin Herbert's skills, but it's not going to be like go rescue us on third down, Justin Herbert offense. They're going to want to run the ball. They're going to want to play good defense. Harbaugh's a good coach. I think Justin Herbert got a big win today. 